Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Welcome everybody. Hey, hey. Another episode of Uncommon Deeds and this one we are very excited to bring you a we we're trying truthfully we were trying to hold out on getting Dave on the show until we got to episode 29. Mhm. But or maybe 27. But we kept getting him on Mondays as the guest for the guest for that week. So we Since thought, like you know episode what? Episode 2. <laughs> We should try this, and we reached out, and he was very willing, and we yeah. talked for a long time. This one is about a two-and-a-half-hour interview, so we're going to mm-hmm. be real brief with this open. Unfortunately, we could not quite get Dave situated with Zoom, so we did have to do this over the telephone, so the quality is not our best, but it does not take away from some of the awesome stories you no. are about to hear. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, he has done it all and won it all and did it with a smile on his face the whole time. Like I couldn't believe how excited he was to talk to us. <laughs> it was a little bit. He was like, yep, I'm in hundred percent. Let's do this. I was like, okay, cool. Apparently he's listened to us. We had to cut off. The recording at the end because he was just going on and on complimenting us. And that is that is honestly slightly a true story. I wish that you were lying, but you're not. <laughs> so very cool moment for us. But yeah, I went ahead and edited some of that out. So you don't have to listen to it. Yeah. Um, fair warning. This one jumps around quite a bit. Yeah, um, this one is unlike any we've done and how it came across it's yeah. not really in chronological order. It's not really in any We really let him steer the ship. He kind of yeah. went from here to there, and we just kept up with him and kind of asked questions from where he was talking about. And with a career like he's had, it would have been five parts to get to everything. <laughs> yeah. But um, we hit on a lot of really cool stuff. Let me uh, briefly run down some numbers here because, you know, he stopped racing 15 years ago almost. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of people that probably never saw him race. I mean, really, I didn't see him race a lot. Um, and Tom didn't see him race a lot, but, you know, he's a legend. So Norwood Arena outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and Hudson Speedway in his hometown in New Hampshire. Um, that's where he got his start in the late 60s, early 70s, Seekonk Speedway as well. These are all tracks that you've probably heard of. Came to Thunder Road in uh, 1972 and won the very first race that he entered there. Um, and then he kind of really never left. And he was track champion in 75 at Thunder Road and Catamount. Um, and just just never stopped winning after that. Um, Thunder Road champion again in 77. I could go on and on. Oxford Open Series, which we never really talked about, um, but that was a big deal. Um, and Bush North champion NASCAR Bush North series in 1996, which is, I think the thing that he considers his crowning achievement. Um, and you'll hear more about that. You know, we, 
we tried to touch on a little bit of everything, um, but like Tom said, it would take it would have taken five episodes to get through all of it um, because he's had an amazing career. Like I said, he took it and ran with it, and he hit on a lot of topics that we wouldn't have thought to talk about that aren't necessarily just about his racing career, more so mm-hmm. about struggling with transitioning out of racing and feeling like he could be at a racetrack when he's not driving. Yeah. And what well, he and wants was... to see the sport become and having more people involved and hit some really cool topics. You know, and there was lots of struggles during his career too. I mean, this is a family team with just him and his brothers. Um and they've built every car that they've raced from the ground up. Um, you know, just about every one of them. Um hauling around an old school bus. I mean, just Imagine bringing a Winston Cup car to Dover, Delaware to race against Daryl Waltrip and Richard Petty and Cale Yarborough in a school bus. Um, This is what those guys did. And then, and Tom brings it up, in 1983, the whole world came crashing down, um, quite literally at Thunder Road with a big flip and then the fight and the split with Tom Curley and the split with NASCAR. And it got real intense. And I don't want to spoil it any further but it's some of the best content that this podcast has had since we started back in whatever january february uh just amazing story and without further ado let's bring that interview to you it is time now for justin to introduce today's guest our guest today is one of the all-time greats in northeastern late model racing and i don't care who you ask uh you know him as perhaps the most popular driver of all time at Thunder Road, uh, multi-time king of the road, swept the 1975 Milk Bowl, three-time Oxford 250 winner, 1996 Bush North champion. I could go on and on, but we're going to let this guy do the talking for you. Welcome to Uncommon Deeds, Dynamite Dave Dion. I don't mind if you go on and on. You were going real well there, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> we keep it's lots of notes. Nice to have <laughs> we are... Uh... We're glad to have you. We weren't sure if we were going to see you. Did you have a tough time getting back from Foxwoods? Uh, oh, boy. Boy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, how in the world did you learn about that? Oh, Facebook. I should have known. Yeah, it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. I was actually with the guy that rescued me, my friend Mark Chavis, who was kind of a TV producer when we were doing the Bush Door. And uh, he and his girlfriend came out, and I took him out to eat and went and see another friend. And, uh, yeah, he kind of rescued me. Still wrecking stuff after all these years, Dave. Yeah, I know. My brother, my brother, Roger, my crew chief, and, uh, yeah, he's still disgusted with me. And, and, uh, here I am broken down a box with a broken ball joint. And I'm saying to myself, God, I used to have a crew that did this. I mean, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know how to change it. So we trailed it at home and I borrowed a stool. Anyway, I got it fixed. I guess I'm spoiled. Well, it kind of comes full circle back to to how we got started. The 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 first question that Tom always asks is, "How did motorsports come into your life?" I live in Hudson, New Hampshire. Uh, we moved here when I was seven from the Boston area, and there's a racetrack, Hudson Speedway, in town. It was built right after the Second World War. So, um, the most of the, a lot of the race teams came out of Massachusetts. And the main road to the speedway came right by 
uh, house, our little general store here. And as a bunch of little kids, we'd sit out on the lawn or up by the gas pumps and just watch the trailers and trucks go by. And we knew where they were going, but we were never able to go to the racetrack with a bunch of little kids. But uh, we were always curious. We were always curious what it was like, where they were going, what was happening. And eventually, uh, one of the farmers I worked for said, you want to go to the races with us? Out of curiosity, off I went, got the speedway, and I was was 11 years old, and uh, I never thought of anything. I guess it really grabbed me, and uh, I was so excited, and that's that's all I wanted to do. I became, you should become a race fan, and then the second thing you do is you try to join a race team, that's a thrill. And I did that, and then the gentleman I was helping up with racing, I, I always told him, I, boy, I'd like to do that. I'd like to race. And so he he helped me build my first race car, and after that, you know, I never looked back. Do you remember any drivers that stood out to you when you were a kid that caught your attention? Well, that's, that's an easy question. It was a gentleman. Everybody had nicknames, just like they did in my era. His name was Smokey. I have no idea why it was Smokey. Everybody smoked, so that didn't apply. His name was Smokey Baldwell. He lived in the next town over. And I guess the reason I liked the guy so much, he, he was a pretty good, rugged man, and it was, they were called cut-downs back then. You know, manual steering and real hard to drive. And he just really manhandled that car. He just made it thing, do things that... Uh, you know, I don't know how fast the car was, but with him driving it, it was real fast and was real competitive. And he was my hero from the beginning, and I still consider him the one that influenced me the most. The most. And I think the part I, that attracted me to him was the fact that um, the minute he got out of that race car, he just became uh, like Superman going back to being Clark Kent. He just acted like a normal person. He didn't act like I'm a big shot, you know walking around with rated and fire system. But I couldn't get over the fact that he could be out on the racetrack and be my hero and be bigger than life. And, and then by the time I got in the pit as a little kid, and he just treated you like, he, he didn't act special. He just went back to being a regular person. I admired that. I wanted to be that. I, I Especially if on the road with the fans, I just... I wanted to get the classes off, and I just wanted to bingo, and I just wanted to be one of them. I, you know, they could think what they wanted me, but I didn't. I didn't want to act like I was any more than them. I was just, I was just one of the fans that was lucky enough to race, and uh, I that that's just the way I wanted to be, and I I hope I did it somewhat. You mentioned your brothers, you guys sitting on the porch. Uh, you know, I've uh, your your family owned a, a country store. Uh, general right, store. Right, I guess and, uh, it's called General, general Store. <laughs> yeah. And and your brothers, you know, obviously you can't mention Dave Dion without mentioning the Dion Brothers racing team um, throughout your entire career. Um, you know, what were you the what, the first one bitten by the bug and, you know, going to Hudson or, or was it all of you? Uh, I was the first one. I, I was lucky enough to go that day with the farmers I worked for. I was 11 years old. And when I got home, when, the, when these people brought me home, and I'd go upstairs with all my brothers, and they'd say, what was it like? What was it like? And I would, you know, I would describe it in my own words. Oh, three cars rolled over, one car of fire, and, and this one did that, and that one did this. Wow, wow. 
And I would go a number of times with these farmers. That was my day for the week. They took me to the races. And, uh, you know, they'd buy me a bag of popcorn, and that was good enough for me. And uh, so, you know, I was 11, Donald was 13, and we didn't really get to go until we got our license. So all that time until the first one got a license and could take the others. And uh, then they kind of went along with it. And, you know, they, uh, I was like, uh, God, I don't know, 20 or something. And that's when I started building that race car, found an old car, dragged it in the yard and took the seats out of it and scraped the under, you know, undercoat off and started building it. And uh, at that time, my other brothers were starting to get married and they had their lives. And so I kind of worked alone for a year or so. It was probably going to take me 10 years to get it done without them. And I guess uh, one would show up, the wife would say, hey, you can go over, you know. <laughs> one would help me, then the other would help me. And once their lives were stable, they kind of came back more, and then and then they became once once their married life and everything was pretty stable, and then they became more committed to it, and then the wives became committed. You know, they all the wives, all the girlfriends, everybody they embraced it. There's none that um, you know were real upset that we were doing it. It was all in. It was all in with the brothers and everyone. And that's the way it was from from the beginning to the end. Uh, all the dance was totally in. That's pretty remarkable because yeah, without, yeah, without all of them, it, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. You know, another thing, Justin, I was at a car show a, a week ago over in Nashville, and, you know, nobody knows me. I mean, I'm a lot older, and, you know, I don't stand out there. I'm just walking around looking at the cars, and one guy says, hey, Dave, you doing? I goes, yeah, how you doing? The person he was with didn't know anything about me, but he had been, and He's kind of telling the story and bragging about me and all that, and the other guy's kind of going along with it. And then he started giving situations where, geez, you can't. You, I couldn't tell you enough stories about this Dion brothers, and the other guys listening. Oh, they're changing the engine, they do this. They, they never gave up. They just didn't matter if they wrecked it, they fixed it, and, and he went on and he cracked. And I, and I thought about it, you know, he probably to the point I was embarrassed, but I said, you know what? If you're bragging about the Dion, team and family now, I'm going to agree with you like, just keep on bragging you know? if it had been bragging just about me as a driver I would exaggerating but the fact he was bragging about the family and the team I was enjoying it and uh, and he was quite accurate with his stories too that we had done all those things he said so if we go to your first ever race true or false you climbed in the driver's window <laughs> and jumped out the other side, scared to death. Yeah, they were getting me in, and yeah, I, just, I mean, I'm not a exaggeration. I either I did do it or I was trying to do it, but I was so scared, so scared. I mean, I had talked about boy, I'm going to show them, and all the divisions, the the modifieds, the NASCAR modifieds had run, and now it was time for the the lesser division, which I think was called Hobby Stock or something like that. And I was watching the modifieds and all excited, and, and the race came down to the end. I forgot, and my brother said, "Okay, let's go." I said, "What? Let's go! It's our race!" Oh my God! I mean, then the reality set in. Down to the pits, you know, we get in, get in the car. Wow, wow! I mean, I, I, I did a lot at the beginning of my career. I did it. I, I, I pictured it being easier. 
uh, it took me forever to be successful. I had no nat- I had no talent, no natural talent, nothing. And and to compound it, because we were a fledgling team, my brothers had no talent. They Paul didn't, you know, Paul was just experimenting, making it handling. All of us were learning. We were all learning almost at the same pace until the very end, just before I won my first race. My brother Paul had kind of stepped out. He was really, his chassis knowledge was really ahead. He was really ahead. And uh, I just kind of had to do what he said. And uh, and that I was actually driving a pretty good car, but doing very poorly. And until you believe in yourself, you're always going to do poorly. You can have, you, you really in your mind don't believe you can do it. You, you talk like you can do it. But inside, you don't really believe you're ever going to win a race. It's been seven years. I had been doing this. I'd been to Vietnam in the middle of that period. But I'd given up. I said, it's going to take a miracle for me to win a race. It really is. And, uh, anyway, the first race, the first win, it was it was the first time I had four new tires. So I guess that helped the situation. We were putting old junk tires in it. Uh, but that night, my brothers, they pulled all the money and put four new tires on the car. It would take me four weeks to pay back. Uh, and I said, oh, my God. That was God. the secret, tires. <laughs> well, it Who, was, knew? I, Who knew after seven years that all you got to do is put tires on it? <laughs> yeah, and it's no different today. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And uh, my brother Paul, he's the engineer. He says, it's real simple. It's the only thing that touches the ground. And yeah. I went, wow, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. You can have a $100,000 race out with bad tires Anyway, I did put the four tires on, and well, I could feel how fast it was. I mean, it was different the way it drove, and uh, worked my way to the front. And uh, they had a late restart, and the two guys that dominated that racetrack, they were just fighting it out between them. I was in third place. They were so busy fighting it out between them, I passed them both on the inside. And, and one, no lie, I won the race. They were still involved with racing each other so hard. That when I came around, they were stopped on the start finish line, and the, the flag man walked past the two of them and put the flag in my window, and the two of them were going crazy. What are you doing? He said, he won. He gets the flag. And they, they really didn't even, it was that way. They were banging each other and pushing each other all over and right down the inside to the second flag. Kind of like a Ronnie Pooch out at Saladega. <laughs> and, and that was it. And that was the beginning. I, now I believe I can do it. And the problem was I went back the next week a little too full of myself, knew I had a fast car, knew I had money to buy four new tires, and I was fast and I was ready, and they put me on my roof real quick. <laughs> it was, now, uh, this was at the know, Norwood Arena near Boston, right? Norwood Arena. The Norwood Arena was the showcase back in the 60s and 70s. They spent a million. I'm just going to throw this number out. I, you know, a businessman come in. They built it uh, not far from Boston. They had big searchlights in the sky. So you'd be driving from anywhere and you could tell where the track was. And there was, had a big clubhouse at the turn, had seats all the way around it. I mean, it was a show place in New England. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it closed. Uh, we won our first race in 71. We dominated in 72 and won the championship, and they closed it down at the end of 72. And that's that's how I found my way to Vermont. I had nowhere to race. And so 
the next year we said, well, you know, there's a series up there. Let's go up, let's go up to Vermont and try it. And we wandered up there and jumped in the fray. Now, before we get too far ahead here, I, I'm interested. How many brothers are there? Five or six? I have five brothers. Okay. So how did you end up as the driver and how did Paul end up as the <laughs> chassis man? And how did, oh, how did all this you. happen? Oh, Justin, thank you. Thank you for that question. That's my favorite question. Because we get it a lot, and they do it using teases, and, and it, 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 I think it happened twice in the last week. Somebody came up with that question when I was around my brother, and I said to my brother, Tom, you want to feel that question, Donald? He says, yep, yep, I do. So they said, how did Dave get to drive the car? And Donald said, all the good jobs were taken. <laughs> That's his favorite thing. <laughs> he still uses it today, you know. We had a traffic man. We had, yeah, they said that the driver was the lesser of the jobs, you know. And my mother said, you got to get Dave something out there. You, you brothers, you got to. <laughs> so that's, they always said that. But, but in reality, that's all I ever wanted to do. I was forced to be in the engine building. Uh, I didn't know anything about engines, but to survive, we couldn't afford them. So I had a lot of people teach me. Teach me to do this, teach me to do that. And then later in my career, from the 90s, I would go out to Colorado. There was an engine school out there. Uh, and I'd go out every year. And uh, there was there was engine builders from around the world that would come to this conference. Uh, Ferrari, Holly Davidson, Robbie Yates was a speaker one year. There was, and uh, it was like $500 for the class. We had, you had presenters. You had four presenters today, noted people. But they told us from the beginning, the people you mingle with while you're here is where you're going to get the not get the real knowledge because you're kind of befriended for a week and they open up and they'll even tell you secrets that they'd never tell anyone. They'll say, where do you race? Vermont. Well, they may be from California. You can't do them any harm, so they'll share their uh, innermost secrets about building. And it was. It, it helped me tremendously. To learn how to build, and I worked at home. You know, went to home in a Moody, built all the Wood Brothers engines, and I was like a sponge. I was anyone that would talk, I would listen, and uh, and then you become a friend, and then it became more personal. Like competition cams, I met him out there, the president, and he kind of treated me like his little project. Like I like helping that guy. <laughs> so that's kind of the way my relationship went. And started out as something and, and then it became a friendship and then the friendship took you a lot further you know being a friend of a company they'll they'll really uh, kind of open up and, and uh, help you more than normal uh kind of a two-part question so one it seems like you never wanted to stop learning no i still do it today i have i get every magazine uh i'm on you know the computer looking up stuff and and if I meet somebody, especially being part of the club in Daytona, I meet a lot of, a lot of noted engine builders, pioneers, and everything. And um, I'll go over to them and tell them I've admired them, and you know, you get to know each other. And pretty soon, then, yeah, I, even today, I, I I know it's computer controlled everything, but I, I'm pretty well up to speed on a lot of it. Not on Zoom calls, obviously, but. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> but I'm well aware of the computer management systems. I got a friend that comes down from Underhill Pond every year. He's got one of my race engines in it, and he also has a new Mustang with all the computer technology. 
And uh, yeah, we work on it. And uh, I have a, I have pretty general knowledge of how the computers manage these engines today. So yeah, I, I didn't uh, treat it like you know like ah that's stupid or I don't care. I but no no I'm willing to learn. I'm, you know and 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 we have people on the race team. We had Linda. She uh, this girl came from Texas. She worked at NASA. Back in around the mid nineties, and she was a Ford girl. Her and a boyfriend, and they got to the Hudson area. They they were Ford fans, and they said, "Any Ford people around? Any engine shops?" And and I met her, and hey, that girl came, set up the dyno, did all my computer work. She she was a big reason we won the championship in '96 with her help. So you know, you never stop learning, and these younger people are willing to share their knowledge. I'm I'm ready to listen. I was going to ask. Why Fords? You know, uh, when I was young, it didn't matter. I didn't have a license. I didn't have a car. I read a book. It was the story of Henry Ford, his life. That was kind of interesting, you know, with the automobile. And uh, and most people did run Ford. So if you go way back to the Firehead area, it was all Fords anyway. So it wasn't like they were loyal to Ford. Ford was really the only race car with the flathead back in that day. And then as the small block Chevy came out, then people migrated to the Chevy and became Chevy fans. But I just kind of, it, it, it was almost my identity very early uh, in my career that I was a Ford guy. And it started attracting some fans, loyal people. And I was kind of the one that carried the banner for Ford, just like the Wood Brothers did over here. And it, I couldn't imagine the Wood Brothers all of a sudden breaking my heart, showing up at Daytona with the Toyota. After I, and I couldn't imagine breaking the hearts of the Thunder Road people or the Arctic people or the other one. And I did the same thing. They depended on me. I know people that have passed on that were loyal right to their dying days. Just, and, and I liked it. I knew I was at a disadvantage a lot. I knew it was a harder road to travel. Uh, but in the end, it was very beneficial to my career and and how far we made it because we stood out enough with the media that if the media covered a race, I remember when Nashville, New Hampshire, sent him um, report at the Lee Speedway opening day with an act race, and he wasn't a he wasn't a race fan. It was an assignment. You can, you know what I'm talking about because that's oh, yeah. your, your business. They sent him to Lee and said, "We got an assignment for you." They sent him to Lee. It was the Bush race, and he came in with his credentials. He talked to some officials, and he said, I got, I got to do a story. I got to do a report. And they said, who should I talk to? And they said, well, um, you might talk to that Dion guy. <laughs> He's got an interesting story. <laughs> and so the guy came over, and uh, he said, they sent me over here to talk to you. Well, we were the defending champions, so that's one of the reasons they sent us over. And I knew I kind of had a – NASCAR told me when I became the champion, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to educate to this. You got you are the defending champion. There's a lot of weight on you. And I took it real serious for the first time in my life that it wasn't all about me going to win the race, that I had a, that I had a responsibility to the sport. So I took it very serious as a champion that year. So I tried to educate people and, and make them over. Well, he became one of the best riders around down here. He fell in love with the sport, but I took it from the grassroots of how hard it was to build a car. 
He said, what's going on now? Oh, every car has to be inspected. Well, what do you mean? Well, so I said, everybody here, they have to be legal. They have to be inspected. Oh, they have to qualify. What do you mean they got to qualify? Well, this guy's going home today. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You know the pressure on these people? There's, there's 50 cars here. 20 are going home. And when I built it up to the point, he went, wow. Boy, this is serious. So people practice and they time trail and they ran up the last chance race and and uh, he went wow. So I think I educated him to the point that he appreciated the sport instead of just a bunch of cars going around. There's a lot of to it. There's a lot of hard work. How about those twenty guys going home? They worked all winter. Now they're going home. Yeah, boy, that the heyday wow. of the Bush North series in the '90s was pretty incredible. Yeah, um, exactly. But- and, and, and I think I did a good job. His name was Gary. I can't remember the last thing. Still writes for the paper. Does a great job. Fell in love with the sport. And uh, that that was kind of my accomplishment of that part of my, my career. So I've been very serious about that. Uh, you know, I belong to that club in Daytona. And that's to honor the veterans. It's to honor the legends. We have a, we're a nonprofit. We honor the people that made the sport. But our job is to educate people to get them in the sport. That's and so it's I, too far. Yeah. I wish that there were more uh, historical clubs and and halls of fame and stuff that took that attitude. That you know you honor the the people who made the sport, but you have a responsibility yeah. to you have and, a responsibility to grow the next generation. And there's there's not enough of that around and, with the old and maybe getting a little off from what you wanted to interview me for, but but I'd like to say this if I could. I'm very close with Dick Bergman. He's our MC at our club in Daytona. We spent a lot of time together. We try to help each other. Uh, I'm probably going to see him tomorrow. And he, he, I was talking to him at the, the Hot Rod show at the Speedway uh, a couple months ago. And he said, Dave, we got to do something about the sport. Look at our age, Dave. Look at all the people. You know, we, we've got to really bear down on this now and get some young people that into it and he built that museum and they're open one day a week and they can't you know we can't yeah. get people to work we can't get people to sponsor it we, you know it's yeah. it's it's the same in daytona it's the same in new hampshire it's it's the same in maine we're all struggling yes. with the same thing that the sport when we die a lot of it's going to die right with us because the passion's gone, the old people that built the sport, that love the sport, that live for the sport, versus the kids that have families to raise, they can buy most of their, their speed, buy most of their success. They're not quite as committed to it. They're committed financially, but they're not committed, you know. We gave it all. We gave up everything to succeed. You gave up having a nice home. You gave up this. You gave up that. You said it was worth it. Uh, it's just a different world, and, and we've got to bear down now and get get more people in the sport. You know, that's one of the big reasons Justin and I started this project together was to capture some stories that need to be heard and give them a place to live for a while. And as much as we enjoy talking to a Derek O'Donnell like we did last week, Who's you know right. thirty years old and great driver and still sure. a lot of a lot of places for him to go. It's talking to people like you and Russ Ingerson, who 
may not be able to tell these stories in another, you know, 10, 15, 20 oh, years. No, that's the reality. I, I talk about dying all the time, and I'm, I'm an upbeat person. I'm a very positive person. But the reality of the world, and you watch half the people in my life have passed now, members of my crew. I'm very fortunate I, I have all my brothers. But get to a point where you, you just got to, it's kind of like sitting down doing your will. You don't want to do it. But yeah. some things you got to say, you know, you better stop putting your ducks in a row now, you know, to move on. And, and just like you do, and you guys remind me very much of, of Dale Earnhardt and what he does. He tells stories. I love that show. Emily Warren, Jerry Bunch. My God, man. It's just a fantastic show. Him and uh, Matt Dillner, who's a friend. And yeah. you guys are doing the same thing. You're doing it for the right reason, which is just, just what you said, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thanks. No. And you're right. We we kind of stole the format from Dale Jr., to be honest with you. <laughs> we didn't really do it intentionally, but we sort of borrowed the format. Uh, we realized that after we started oh, no, it. No, but... no, no. Don't be. No, no. No, yeah. we all do the same. Why, why would you reinvent the wheel, Justin? Right, it's right. It's a good format. You're, yeah. you're, you're pulling in the same direction. No, don't ever apologize for that. It means, <laughs> heck, I, I, the guy's beating me every day at Thunder Road. You think I'm not going to look at his car? Right. <laughs> right. That's not a gun killing me. You know, I'm not that proud. <laughs> yeah. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just find a way to make it go faster for you. Yeah. Yeah. Compliment it. Take, take what Junior's doing. Take what this one's doing. And, uh, you know, I was talking with Bill Johnsler. I don't know if you know Bill. He's from Hartford, yeah. Vermont. Yep. Bill owns that big record company. So Bill, uh, Sable and Sons. Bill yeah. owns like eight. 80 race cars and classic cars, 32 foot and everything. I stopped at his place yesterday on the way back from Milton. And uh, we're, we're the two organizers for the, the racing part of the Waterbury Car Show. Because when they had it in Stowe, um, we, we were part of it. And then when they moved from Stowe to Waterbury, uh, the person that was kind of in charge of uh, Ed, Ed something, he had some health problems, and he said to all of us, we were there with our race cars, and he said, someone's got to carry the flak if this is going away. So me and Bill got involved, and I was up in Florida. It was in the middle of winter. We had to go to a meeting in Waterbury at the fire station, sit down with all the old doctors, and they, you know, <laughs> and plead our case, basically. And uh, this is Dave Dion. He's going to help. And so I stood up. I have no problem talking, obviously. And, and uh, they were all sitting there with a jaded, look eye or whatever they say and one person says well you promised those 60 cars you dropped the ball and you didn't do this and we don't need you and all that and as hard as it was for me I had to apologize yeah. <laughs> and get on the good side of these people <laughs> and by the time we got through the meeting they said we'll give you one more year to pull it off so they gave us a spot and all that and and uh, we did that and uh, and then uh, of course, nothing went on last year. The year before, they gave us the top building in the front where you drive by. And uh, and the part that I was most proud of was that the person that was either collecting tickets to stop people going was right near where we were. And he walked over to me after and said, I've never seen anybody spend so much time with kids. There was a whole busload of Boy Scouts came in. Every kid got to sit in my car. Yeah. And he said, I said, that's what the sport's all about. I said, heck, you know, we, 
Thunder Road on a Thursday night. I mean, that's what the sport is. It's these kids, you know. And and he said, "Wow, I'm impressed." So I think he put a good word in for us racing people after that. He said, "These guys are all right. These guys are good." So it is a hell of a show there on Route Two, and um, a friend of mine, John Adams, has a car that he's uh, that he runs with Near. And uh, when my little one was, I don't even know if she was a year old yet. We brought her to the, the Waterbury car show and, and she sat in your car and she sat in his car and she sat in the coops and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and they never, never, and, and for better or worse, I think she's got a problem now. She's, she likes racing. And now I'm seeing the dollar signs <laughs> starting to roll 20 years down the road. Well, you know, so Justin, you got to realize I saw three generations go through my car. Yeah. I came to, I came to race in Vermont in 1972 and I, yeah. and I've, if I was to go back Thursday, there would be three generations talking to me. You know, you don't remember me. I was that little boy that sat at your car. This was my son, and that's my grandson. You know, it's yeah. like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. You don't think they have an effect? <laughs> it does. It you know, sure does. And I, you know, I, I take a lot of pride, and I really like that pride. I miss that. I miss that. I'm obviously, I miss seeing the green flag and the checker flag, but I really miss the in the pits after you know, with the people. That's yeah. uh, that's the part that I you know, the racing, my eyesight's not as good. I know I wouldn't be as good, so I just I don't get myself. I just you know, we were winning right up until I decided to pull out. And that's the way I want to be remembered. I just you know, I didn't want to hang on to the sport. I didn't want to live on my reputation. That's why I don't go to the church. Uh, you know, if I, I if I did go and I'd see some of the old timers I you know, and they'd have all the good stories. But most of the people, ninety percent Maybe more don't know me, don't know much about me. So I just, you know, I feel uncomfortable. Well, you mentioned 1972. Let's get back on track here. And, and yep. you're dominating at Norwood, but you start to venture up here. Take us through. Right. How did you, you find out about Thunder Road? Well, I, I got all the, the racer cases, obviously. Well, but I'll tell you the, how I got the Thunder Road the first time. We, went, we won the race in 71 towards the end of the year. Now we know the value of tires. Well, we were obsessed with race tires now. The only tire, you could run any tire. NASCAR had to be 10 inches wide. You could run M&H, which was a local company in Watertown, Mass. But my brother Paul said, they raced good years up in Vermont. I was reading about it. I said, what do you mean? It's It's a real race tire. Like they run down south and they use them up north. And I said, Really? You think those would be faster? He said, I, Why don't you go up to Thunder Road? There's a track called Thunder Road. I got off a long exit. I didn't know where it was. I come to the first exit, this area. I said, Yeah, it's probably not on the first exit. I drive from the next exit, Berlin. I go down into the town. Well, you know what it's like on Thursday night. Oh, yeah. Everybody's <laughs> at the track. <laughs> it was yeah. like, Where is everybody? Somebody yeah. says, it's up on a mountain. It's a, the track's on a mountain? Yeah. Well, finally, I found my way, and I got there real late. Uh, I think it was a Conti or something. So I paid my ticket price. I went in. I bought Hill. I didn't know it was Bud Hill. I just crawled up on the hill, and I sat there with the people, and I went, wow, is this exciting. Oh, my God. So I watched the race. I went down in the pit. Danny Bridges was driving a Ford from Blatchford. And so I had to go see the fourth guy. You know, he didn't win. I think he finished second, third, fourth. 
I just wanted to get out. She said, boy, you did a good job. I said, you know, I, so I went to the tire truck, and the guy said, no, I'm all out of tires. I went, oh, wow. He said, if you want to go to Rutland, that's where my tire store is. So so anyway, I was told to get Ray tires. Bean, so right? Yeah. You're a So yeah. my brother said, come over with tires. I had the cash. And so I wanted to drive to Jerry Grisco at that time. I knew him from Norwood. He saw me. He says, "What are you doing, Dave?" I said, "I got to go to Rutland in the morning." He said, "Well, you could stay at my house if you want." So I was traveling to Rutland, stayed at his house. Next day, I show up in Rutland. The guy, yep, got my four tires. Came back. So you asked how I found the barn, and so I told my brother, "Wow, that's a neat little track. I don't know if I'd like to race on it. It looks hard." And he said, well, so we ran the rest of the year, and uh, it was somewhere along the line. He said, you want to, what day do they run? I said, they run on Thursday. Well, we don't, let's go up and try it. So we went up, we went up Sunday first. He said, there's a track called Devil's Falls, and we can go on a Sunday and try it. So we, we ran Norwood. We ran Norwood on Saturday night. Norwood had a 350 cubic inch limit. The old NASCAR North had a 302 with I had bought an engine. So I got home from the road about midnight. We had to change the engine. We put a 302 in it. And we drove. You know, we didn't get any sleep. We showed up at Devil's Bowl. When you mentioned Russ Ingerson. And uh, so we unload. It's a NASCAR track. We're legal. Everything's good. I got the little motor in. Everything. We go out. And uh, I remember racing against Russ Ingerson that night. Number 51, right? Something like yeah. that. It was a yellow car. I remember going out and race, and uh, I don't know how good we did. Uh, I think uh, I think there was an accident, and I shifted down and blew the cart to something. We didn't have a good night, anyway. So now we know where Devil's Bowl is. I know what Thunder Road is. And uh, middle of uh, 1972, my brother Paul says, "Let's go try the other track. Let's go to Thunder Road." Well, I got up there and I went around. I went, "Oh man, this is impossible to drive this track." I went out and practice. I mean, I was using the whole track. I said, how are we going to race? I need the whole track to go around. What am I going to do when the steel cars out? So, <laughs> so they put me in the third heat. Uh, they heard that we were a good runner in Norwood Arena somehow through the papers. And so they put us in, they put us in the fastest heat. Chop off the banner, Bobby Dragon, I mean, the, all the fast guys. So I made it. I was like, last qualifier and they started me on the back of the feature and um, I was just it was a big crash and about 12 cars went off the back stretch and off the third turn I went around the wreck and I just stopped and when they lined the cars up they didn't consider me a wreck you know a, a caution car so now I'm halfway up the pack I'm like crap I'm, I'm probably 10th Got all the hard work done. <laughs> yeah, all the fast cars were all behind me now. And all the front front ones were low handicapped cars, guys that hadn't won, guys that have, you know, not bad drivers, but learned drivers learned. So I just started passing them because we had a good car. I had a little bit of experience. So I made it to the front. And I'm just going as fast as I can go. And finally, John Paul breaks out of the back. And pulls up on me. I have about five to go. He put all the pressure in the world on me. We win the race. First time ever running Thunder Road, we win. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap. 
you don't think I'm too full of myself the following week, do you? <laughs> they got me upside down again. <laughs> so oh, they flipped you again? They got me they on the wall, and I skid, skid it, uh, you know, the, the wall, and I skid yeah. it all the way. Here's a picture. If you can see the whole roof number going down. You know, you've seen that, what, a hundred times? Sure. Times yeah. I, I had no idea what a wall that leads out would do if you hit it. You climb it. You don't bounce off it. And, I learned that the hard way. Me and Ronnie Barker were battling the two boards, and I got the wall. Ended up stopped right against the pit, you know, the pit wall stands and everything. But, uh, but you know why we succeeded at Thunder Road? Because when I saw how the fans were, and I know it sounds phony and all that crap, but I was so impressed with the fans at Thunder Road. They appreciated every car on that racetrack. They had their favorites. Every car during the anthem, everybody got, you know, a cheer, a complimentary cheer. And, and to me, I found that to be, you know, I was, I probably had four people in the grandstand that night. And when they did the anthem in the lights, and they said, and from Hudson, New Hampshire, Dave Dion, and I could hear more than four people cheering. And that impressed me. <laughs> it was like, wow, these people really like their race drivers up here. They even rooted for me. <laughs> I fell in love with those fans when I raced and I was down and when I didn't think I could do it, I just felt like you've got to give 100% all the time. And Tom Curley said it a number of times, you owe those fans. Yeah. And that's, that's the way I drove the track. That's why I never quit. That's why I think I did the impossible at times. It was, it was for me, but it was for those fans. And I, and to this day, I, I would still be that way. And it was clearly endearing both ways to you, to them, as Justin kind of said in the open, you were arguably one of, if not the most popular driver Thunder Road ever had. And you're a rarity in the sense that you are a favorite driver who is not from Vermont, who's not yeah. you know, listed as think Barry Vermont. Right. Yeah, think of that. Think of that. And if I could tell you a quick story, I'll try and make it as quick as possible. We're running, we're doing good, we're winning and all that. We race one night. Tom Tiller's brother-in-law was the black man. His name was Clint. And I'm not saying things weren't on the up and up, but sometimes the flags favor someone more than (laughs) another. Okay. Still better. And we're battling. Tom, maybe you'll get a win a year. Most of them go to our team, Bobby Dragon. Tom, Tom was a good race driver. And most of it was between Bobby and I back in that era. Yeah. No matter where we started, it was going to come down that way. And uh, this night, there was there was a crash. And we weren't in it or anything. And they sent me to the rear of the field for no reason. And my friend John Keeper, who was Bobby Dragon's engine builder and crew chief, we've become great friends. I saw him when I was up there two days ago. Now, we're, we're in the back and Bobby's running fourth. This is an automatic win for Bobby. Right. We'll never get to the front. And John Kiefer, who's a principal person, even though he was an arch enemy of mine, said, why? They told me, my brother said, why'd they put Dion to the rear? No reason. They just put him to the rear. Well, John said, that's not right. We want to win, but that's not right. And and he actually tried to. The story went: we went to the rear, we fought our fought our way through the pack. 
Bobby Pastella won the race. Everything, everything according to Hoyle. Everything's normal. We fought our way all the way back to third from the rear. And I went right straight in the pit. I was so pissed. Went right in the pit. They dropped the ramp. I drove it, drove it right up into the bus, slammed the door, and I was taking my fire suit off up in the front of the bus. And John Ante was a crew, was a NASCAR official. John Ante come in the bus. said, Dave, you finished top three. You got to go on the track. I said, I'm not going out. He said, you have to. I said, no, I don't. I don't have to do anything I don't want to. And he said, Dave, please, please unload your car and go back out. And I said, no. And he said, how about a favor for me? And I said, why? He said, look out. Look out at the track. The people were up against the fence, and they were pushing the fence out onto the racetrack. They were throwing, I mean, the fans were pissed because it was an injustice. And that, that was the night. Well, I did. I did. We unloaded that car. They waited for the ceremony on that car. You had the we car in the bus? The, the car was in the bus. Wow. I took it back out of the bus. They held up the ceremony out on the start finish line. I got in the car, and I drove it out. And I went down the back stretch, and I looked over, and I could see the grandstand, and I could see the people standing. And I drove up to the ceremony, and I stopped because I was told, that's what you got to do. And I got out of the car, and it was the biggest cheer I ever got in my life. Because mm. the fans had seen an injustice, and all of a sudden, I didn't be, I wasn't the outsider. I was, I was, they embraced me. Because I had fought my way from the rear to the front. And, and they just saw something in that, and that's when, and that's when basically the Dillon Brothers legacy started at Thunder Road that night with the fans. But a lot of fans that had their favorite. But I was their second favorite. You know, they were Dragon fans. You know, you know, and, and I, I swear that's where it all came from. And and that, you know, they they liked that grit that I showed, and they liked uh, and and they said that that was the beginning of the relationship between the the Thunder Road fan and the Dion brothers that night. Was Tom Tiller part of that top three? You know, I didn't. I think he finished second, and I think I got the third. I mean, it wasn't Tom's fault. It, it wasn't no. even that big a deal. But, but I went to the real play absolutely nothing. I mean, it was just, but we were we were dominating, and you know, the NASCAR's everything's done that thing. But the fans, the, the fans are the most knowledgeable fans you'll see at that track. Yeah, they watch, they study, they talk to people after. Those are smart fans to talk about. When Russ Earl and 1989, Buster Owen won the championship. The last race of the year was a 200 lapper. We blew the engine in practice. We had to put an engine in. I got burnt at the 300 at Beatrice a week before the doctor said I couldn't drive because I was going to get blood poison. My whole leg got burnt. I got in the car. We put special stuff and everything. We get to the track. I'm not supposed to be driving. Bobby, I actually Bobby was going to drive the car for me because he didn't have a car in 89. And my I got into the triad and the burned it. And it was all my products were all burned and everything. They have a bunch of special things. They, anyway, so I'm going to drive it. We blow the motor. Now we're, start, we're changing the motor. It was the rain delayed. We got the motor changed. And Russell and had won everything that year. He just yeah, dominated. Yeah. yeah. And it was a 200 lapper. I'd been burned bad. We had to put the other motor in. We win the race. It was the ball final, whatever. 
And Ross Irwin literally was crying at them because I beat them. And the fans saw that, and they never forgot and said, don't <laughs> ever come back to this track. I mean, Ross Irwin would come at the Thunder Road would be like, jump for that, go into the Arctic. It was that bad because the fans went, what a friggin' baby. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, like I said, the fans are really all the motivation for everything I do. Well, you know, and I remember, I'm, I'm skipping way off topic, but when Bush North came back to Thunder Road in 97, yep. you know, Mike Stefanik, and I know that you were great friends oh, with him. He hated, he hated, hated Thunder it. Road. And the fans hated Mike Stefanik because of what he, he used oh, to say yes, about the track. And Mike, and Mike and I were friends. And Mike said to me, when we won the championship and we went to the banquet, and I think the banquet was in 97, you know, just like that. And I got up and did my whole thing and thanked my sponsors and I did everything. And the last thing I said is I wrapped it up. And guess what? We're going to put the road this year. <laughs> I screamed it out, and those guys were so afraid to go to Thunder Road. They hated it. Mike Stefanik said it shouldn't be on the schedule. They, they, oh, I remember Marjorie Parker at the window, uh, at the ticket window, and Kelly Boy showed up, and Matt Kobler from the Mohegan car and started bossing them around, and we're going to call Dave Toter in, and Marjorie says, <laughs> she ran down the riot. She put them in their place that night. I said, welcome to Vermont, boys. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. She was the best at that, too. I, I love Marjorie. Uh, I miss her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those guys were all worried about the trees scratching the trailers going around into the pits. And oh, stuff. God, yeah, they went crazy over there. Oh, horrible. We're getting horrible. ready. They're going to walk the drivers up. I'm standing next to Mike. We used to hang around together. And Mike says to me, you know what, Dave? I said, what's that, Mike? If they give me 10th place right now, I'd pack up and go home and be the happiest man in the world. Well, later in the evening, I saw Mike and I said, that 10th place would have been better. good deal for you, Mike. You should have took it. <laughs> yes, I was wrecked. He was pissed. It was like, it was almost funny because I had all the respect for the world for Mike. And he could adjust to anything, but he refused yeah. to adjust to Thunder Road. Yeah. He hated it beyond words. Yeah. And he says to me, how in the world do you do this? I said, well, I, I can say the same thing you for most of New England tracks. I kind of mentioned before generational differences. And one of the glaring ones that I see is the fact you're part of, you know, some of those rare groups that would run five nights a week. Yes. You know, you're going, you know, Sinair. Thunder Road, Catamount, Airborne, yep. Devil's Bowl. What what is that like for you guys trying to keep a car running for five nights a week? You know, even nowadays it's rare to see someone who's running, you know, full time yeah. at a track and trying to do the ACT tour every other week. That's a great question. I can't even think if anyone's ever asked me that question. I think the, the main thing, we had great respect for each other as drivers. We didn't like each other, but we respected each other. And if I wrecked Bobby the Dragon and he wrecked me, he was basically bankrupting me and I bankrupt him. Yeah. You could take a guy right out of racing uh, by wrecking him. 
there wasn't many wrecks in my time. I mean, a lot of close contact, a lot of blemishes, but outright wrecks. There wasn't a lot of them. You know, this guy blew a boat, and uh, uh, everybody was paying their own bills. Nobody had big sponsors. And that That's the worst thing in the world. It cost the guy, you know, his living. And I think that's why we had so much respect. You, you're just worried about blowing up or blowing gears or something. You don't worry about wrecking. I mean, you did wreck now and then. Uh, but I think during that five race thing, four race thing, I think it was a way more respect for each other. We're hauling all the way to Sonero and Olympia from Hudson, New Hampshire. Mm. And no spare motor, just a spare shot block, or maybe a spare head, extra rock. You know, Bobby Dragon had his engine shop down, uh, you know, John was down on Pine Street in Burlington, so he was close. And maybe John Rosati had money and motors, you know, but most of us didn't have a spare motor ready to put in. We didn't, you know, uh, I think that's how we were able to do it then. We didn't turn the engines real in, but there was, there was a lot of attrition, mechanical attrition, the parts weren't that good. Uh, but as far as wrecking and need a second car, and Tom Curley said way back, nobody should have ever been allowed to bring a second car to a racetrack. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, 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 that's these dumb haulers, these haulers we have to buy with NASCAR and everything drove the cost. So you come with your car. And uh, if you can work with some, something else, maybe drive someone else's car to keep your points. If something happens, that's fine. But no second car should have ever been allowed. You know, would have been, I think there would have been a lot more respect if you just said, well, we'll get another car. So, you know, to expand on what Tom asked and sort of on what you said, were you hauling from Hudson every night or did you stay up here? How does How does a team from southern New Hampshire – manage that schedule um, and when guys like dragon we, or whatever you know even the furthest guy away other than you is cabana and he's not that far right well the way it worked out and that's why you got to realize all my brothers got full-time jobs and families. Yeah. the families were not a problem the families were wonderful the wives everything they get out of work my brother paul was an engineer for bell labs my brother donald worked at general electric down near boston my brother Roger was working construction. Uh, I was the only one that actually would stay over. We'd go to Thunder Road. I would leave Thunder Road. I'd either, at first, we would go to Lone Pine Campground up in Colchester, wherever it is. I would just pull in there with the bus. I'd roll the bus out and I'd put a cot in the bus and I'd sleep there. <laughs> you know. And if we were going to Plattsburgh, my brothers had to come all the way back. From Hudson, I'd already be up there with the bus. Oh Couldn't afford to run the bus back and forth. No, it was difficult. It was, it was difficult. And eventually, uh, my friend Jack Anderson, who had raced and had the shop on Wilsonville, called uh, it's like a fixer shop. You can go and work on your car. You could yep. rent tools and rent the thing. It was near Joe Barry's. And, and he saw me sleeping on the side of the road or in the rest area one day, and he asked me at the track. You broken down? It's not. I was sleeping. He said, "Well, come to my shop." So, if he didn't race on the road, when he got up in the morning, there I'd be sitting out the shop, sleeping in the, sleeping in the bus, and he'd come out with a cup of coffee and say, "Unload it. What are you gonna do? I gotta change gears." Okay, he wouldn't charge me. Charged everybody. You know, that was that was his business. But he became a good friend. He's, you know, he he's a fellow racer, but became a good friend. So, and then from there. Uh, <laughs> That's how we did it. But, you know, I didn't realize until my career was over and looked back what all my 
crew members and brothers did. I never, I never even thought about what they were doing. They were driving three hours south, three hours north, three hours here, paying their own gas, paying their own way in. You know, <laughs> wow. God. Yeah, I guess, you know, my Danny Dadgett from Australian City said to me, we were talking, you know what, Dave? It would almost be impossible to put a team together like us in this day and age. Yeah. It's almost impossible. It's almost hard with a checkbook. Never mind, all volunteer. You know, they did this for, what, 40 years? <laughs> well, Barry to Hudson to Plattsburgh to Hudson is a, that's a, that's a rough 24 hours. <laughs> that's, yeah, you're, you know, you're up there and, you, and yeah. you're going to, yeah, you're getting on the ferry and, and you're racing from the track to the ferry before they shut the ferry down. I don't know if they still do that. They usually shut it down back then. And, <laughs> no lie, Bobby Dragon had a race against this type of race against it in his box. John Keeper told me, well, I had to match that because we had to beat people to the ferry. So yeah. we put a two-speed rear in and I ended up putting a 390 engine in it with a cam in it and everything. So we could run about 90 with those buses. I mean, those things would fly. <laughs> <laughs> in a smaller vacuum or a different type of question, why 29? Well, Obviously, the number I was going to get had to be a famous number that affords it. So when I became a race driver, I wanted to mimic my Ford heroes. Well, 27 was Donnie Allison, and it happened to be orange with a black hood. So I picked 27, which wasn't taken up here. But in 1978, we went Winston Cup racing, and we had to apply for a Winston Cup license. So we looked, we tried to get 27. Well, Kale Yabrock, I think Kale had it then with MC Anderson or somebody. Anyway, it was taken. 28 was taken. It was Buddy Baker or somebody, people at Davy House. And 29 opened up because Dick Hutchison had just um, retired and he was a Ford driver. And so I took the closest to 29. So my Winston Cup career was 29 and then. When that ended, uh, the fans had come and said, you're not changing back, are you? Nah, we'll just leave it there. So it was 29 to the end. But Hmm. 27 was famous right up until 78, and then it went to 29, which became our cup number, and we just carried it over. But that that question gets asked all the time. (laughs) Why? How come 27, then 29? (laughs) So it was just a Ford thing, the the Donnie Ellis and the Orange Torino, which is, you know, Donnie came to my event and uh, I have an event during Speed Rakes at the club called Coffee with the Characters and Donnie and Bobby came and Red Farmer came and we were all doing things and, and Bobby was doing his book and Donnie and Donnie had a model of his car and uh, I saw him 27 orange black hood I mean the whole deal and uh, and Bobby had a model of his car we were fooled around or something like that. And I said, let's take a picture. And I had something of my car. And we're arguing over which car should be in front. I said, well, Bobby said, well, my belongs in front. Nah. You know, it was just funny. There's a couple of heroes of ours with their cars. And we're playing with little toy cars on the table there. Because we're going to take a picture of these cars now. And we're arguing over which car should be in the lead. <laughs> People you look up to, and then you clown around with them like it's just pals of yours. Like, that's probably my big thrill being part of that club, is I get to meet everybody 
And at first, I'm in awe, just like everybody else. And then pretty soon, we're just pals joking around. And I go, wow, this is so nice. And you hear stories. I think Wardell Wilson is telling me stories he never told. He said, you're not going to believe this, Dave. And I'm like, no, I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a pretty pretty rewarding for me to climb out of the seat and, uh, and then be part of a club. People I admired and only knew from the television. It's, it's kind of... I, uh, I've been part of the club for 15 years. I've been a board member for 12. I still get a thrill out of it. You know, they say, you really have fun with this. I thought, oh, it's great. And, and when we inducted the Dragons three years ago, yeah. I was the one that submitted them. And, then, you know, they didn't know any more than they knew me up here in the Daytona area. And uh, they said, why are you so high on the Dragons? And... And I thought about it, and I said, you know what? Because they're good people. They're good citizens. They're good members of their town. I admire them as people. And when I raised them, it's the enemy. And, <laughs> right. and anyway, and, and I, I said they should go in as brothers, and the club says we don't do that. No club does that. You know, Glenn and Leonard Woods couldn't go in. They did later. They've all changed that, that rule now. And when, I, when we got inducted in the near Hall of Fame, they wouldn't, they refused to put the Dion brothers in, and I, I turned down the, uh, I turned down the nomination, and Dave Ruge was the presenter, and Dave called me, I'll fix it, I'll fix it, and I said, no, and so I agreed to it, so we all went to the, the induction, and Dave Moody promised it would be all right, and I'm sitting there, I'm not in a good mood, come up from Florida, my brothers are all there with me, and finally he said, you know, he does his spiel, and then he says, and now without further ado, I'd like to present, and then he pauses, and I'm waiting, and he says, one-fourth of Dion Brothers Racing gave me on. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so, so we went in as brothers. I just thought that was just so cool. So when got the Dragons inducted, they didn't want to do it. And I said, that's mean to do it any other way to have two brothers fighting over who was more successful who was right. more deserving and so they agreed and they put him in his brothers and I said to Bobby he thanked me so much and Beaver and I, and I said to me that was my greatest accomplishment I got you to go in his brothers something I never got because they, it wasn't listed that way it was still the Dave Dion award even though you know <laughs> well and they deserved it and you know, if anything, uh, Beaver had the most recognizable name of anybody up here. Of course, you know, Beaver yeah, Dragon. Yeah. What the hell's yeah, a Beaver Dragon? Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to arguing with Bobby and Donnie Allison about which car goes in front, in reality, whenever Bobby came up here to play, which was quite often, uh, it was always yeah, your car up sure. front in the in the 70s. I mean, you were you were unbeatable for quite a stretch. Like you said, it was you and Bobby Dragon. And um, there was one year, though, that I want to talk about um, in 74 when it was all Joey Carafas. And that was all Joey. I already know the answer before <laughs> I asked the question. But but what was the key behind Joey Carafas winning that that title that year? All the titles that year. Paul Dion. Yeah. Paul was the chassis. The wise got shooting Paul's wife and Roger's wife over something and the two wives agreed if that brother goes to the track, this guy goes. 
And so Paul, it's surprising, Paul's still married. Roger DeVoe is right after that. And um, so Paul wasn't going. He was just trying to keep peace with his family. And so Roger was going. And Joey Carapas got wind of it. Well, Bob Curtis, he drove to Bob Curtis. Bob Curtis knew Paul's ability from nowhere. And they kept hounding Paul to come help out. Just, just stop by. Just stop by. Just check the car out. And they sucked him in. And Joey just, that was it. Joey won everything with Paul as a screw chief. And, uh, and they got to the end of the year. And we had a terrible year. Roger's a great charity man, but he, he can't match Paul. And it was a terrible year for him. Just, just, just terrible. I mean, we blew everything. We were out of money. Bankrupt Stuart's son. They were bringing us engines and shop logs. We kept blowing them up. And we did everything. We weren't handling good. We couldn't keep them all together. We were overheating. The whole year was gone. It never existed. And uh, Paul, I remember Joey winning the fall final at uh, Stafford. Like I said, he won everything. And of course, we broke as usual. And, and we were pushing our car out of the infield to fit. And they were in Victory Lane, and as we were pushing it, I just glanced over to Victory Lane, and I saw my brother Paul, and he, he usually stayed away from all that type of stuff. But somehow or other, I was looking over, and he was looking at me, and it was just something right there. I think he looked at me, and I looked at him. We were a long ways away, and he quit. And, you know, maybe I'm fabricating it away. It was even in the book, but... I think he said something like, I, I can't race against my brothers anymore. And he came back. And because Roger was gone, the, the, the wives kept their work. All of 75, Paul, Roger was gone. And it was just Paul and me. And, you know, two years without without the family being together. And 74 was the worst year of my career. And 75 was the best year of my career. Yeah, I want to read some numbers real quick here. In 1974, you had one win, and Joey Carafas had 12. And yeah, in 1970, <laughs> 1975, you had 17 wins, and Joey didn't yeah. win anything. And and Robbie Crouch right. was driving the 25 car, and he only had five wins. So I mean, that's if that's not a, an indicator of how strong Paul was, uh, well, you know, and I'm not taking anything away at, from Roger by any means, but no, and and that's why it's such a delicate subject. To this day, and I was speaking to someone just days ago, that when we talk about 75, I have to be very careful that I'm not insulting Roger. Right. Because he wasn't part of it. You know, he was the lifeblood of our team, and he, he was cheated out of that because of, you know, it was sad yeah. for me. It was, a, yeah, the fact, you know, that, that's why when we got back together and the family got back together, that's all that ever mattered to me from then to the end was that we stayed together as a family. That even that just became that's all I did. We could fight and feud and do everything, but I don't want to ever go through that. Because that's how close we are as brothers. The good news is if he's back in seventy six, you had sixteen wins that year, so it was a pretty good year with him with him back too. Well yeah, and you know and that's another thing I said we ran seventy five with a seventy two Torino body on the top. We took that body off at the end of 75, and I wonder if my brother Paul's the one that did get that body off again. And I think the memory of that successful year 
of that car, we destroyed that body and came out with a Kuka. I think Paul was behind that, that he wanted it erased. He didn't want the credit for 75 at the expense of his other brother. I never said it before I thought about it, but it was. I think Paul's very quiet person, very deep thought. And, you know, and when we came back in 76, it was a new car, a new car, everything. And, and then we renewed the, uh, the team and the, and the success all came back. And, and that car was probably the best car we ever built, that Cougar. We went to Martinsville. Goodyear called me in January. They had a close relationship. We need a favor. And I said, what? You need to go to Martinsville. I said, we don't have a race car. Dave, please, come to Martinsville. I said, why? Nobody's going to run Goodyear. If I have some come out with their new tire. There'll be 80 or 90 or 100 cars there, Dave. Nobody is committed to Goodyear. We need you to come down. We rushed and got the Cougar done. And we went down as a favor. They said, you're not going to qualify, Dave. We're going to tell you that right now. And I said, boy, our, our tire is two-tenths of a second slower than the Firestone. We know that, but we can't get a tire filled. But we need you there to represent us. So I go down, bring the car down, brand new car. Jimmy Hensley says, hey, Dave, you're not going to qualify. You better get those tires off. I said, I'm here for a favor. We make one lap of practice, never get up to speed, and we blow the motor. We change the engine. We missed all the practice. I don't have one lap of practice. We time trial. There's 90 cars here. We qualify in the top 10 on the good years. Mm. They're two-tenths of a second slower than the Firestones in good years. So, oh, my God. They never forgot that when we went there. We could have won that race, and we pitted early in the race. I was right at seven. Just the floats, and I couldn't get the air clean run. We went down the lap. I fought my way down, but we finished seventh of the race. And Monster, on those Goodyears, and Goodyears, they just we've been tight with Goodyear. And when we started our Winston Cup career in '78, Goodyear gave us they gave us the discount on the tire. They did anything. They said we owe you for the rest of your career. And and they said because you did something for us, you came down. Knowing our situation, <laughs> you know, a corporation like Goodyear asked us, you know, a hit from New England <laughs> for a favor to see comical play. <laughs> but they, they had that much faith in us. We won that auction 250 on a tire they said nobody down south could even drive on. They discontinued that tire. They said they hated it. Jack Ingram was their driver. And they said, that's the worst tire we ever built. And we put it on one the auction. And, and, and I remember Dick Demick with Pepsi saying, how good is your brother? Oh, he's good. <laughs> he's good. <laughs> I, really, I really, my dream was that he would go with the Wood Brothers, with Pearson, when the Wood Brothers were struggling. And I tried to talk to Albie Turner and letting Lennon come down. And, uh, you know, but Lennon was way too proud to turn over the reins to some Yankees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do you? Stories you never heard, huh, Justin? <laughs> that's why we're that's why we're talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you take from the cup racing experience in '78? Uh, I I took that uh, they were very set in their ways back then. Everybody bought a bad a bad your car or one. They were very set. We actually brought ideas to cup. 
uh, NASCAR fodders. Some of them we got in. None of them were illegal. They were all better ideas. They were safer ideas. Uh, I was very proud of what my brother built for a car and they did. Obviously, we couldn't ask you pit stop. We didn't know much about running that rear end. You know, they have to run a nine-inch rear with oil coolers. And first race we ran, that burnt up on us. Um, our handling was probably one of the best in Cup on the short track. I mean, we went to Richmond qualified fourth yeah. against those guys. Uh, and we were, the, the chassis was that good. And Leonard Wood and the Woods weren't running the full series. And I remember seeing Leonard and Glenn. And they said, yeah, we heard you ran good at Richmond. And I said, yeah. And, and, and Leonard said, what engine do you have in the car? And I told him. He said, you have the high port heads? I said, no, I just have regular Cleveland heads. What cams do you have in it? I had this one. Leonard did, did, the, did it in his mind. He said, you were down 150 horsepower for the guys you were racing with. What manifold do you have on it? What you have here? What was your compression? I told him everything. What rod lane? He said, you were down 150 horsepower. And you were running with those guys. He said, you guys must really handle. I said, yeah, we really have to. You know, and for Leonard to say that, and I, you know, Ricky Rudd, I remember Ricky Rudd, I was standing by the fence, and Ricky wasn't Ricky yet. Uh, and he came over, he said, how do you go around these short tracks so fast? And uh, he was good on the big track. And I, we talked, and I helped him, and he thanked me, and later when the Loudon opened, I I was up there for the press conference, and they, the couple drivers were there, and they said, well, guys, we're going to go out on the track now. He, says, uh, he asked a couple of the drivers, and he said, what do you, what do you got to do or something to that effect? And Rick, Ricky Rudd said, I'm going to the back of the room and talk to my buddy Dave Dion before I even come off the track, and everybody <laughs> in the room turns around. Who the heck is Dave Dion? <laughs> it was so funny because Ricky was just just a regular guy. We always, you know, he said, "Boy, you guys are so good on short tracks." Well, I love short tracks. You know, I was never any good on big tracks. I didn't even like them. I was like Butch Lindley. Butch Lindley hated big tracks. Yeah, I I never liked them either. That's a that's a guy that I did want to ask you about, uh, Butch Lindley, because you guys you yeah. guys had a pretty good relationship. I don't think it all it was did. always that great, but but it ended up being really nice. And um, you know the 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 book that uh, you did with Dave Moody a few years ago, um, yeah, right. you know you spoke very highly of Butch Lindley. Yeah, I mean Butch was the toughest guy in the fight, but uh, he was he was really a southern gentleman. He was a really nice guy. Um, but he was my toughest competition. I mean, he had Black Eye Nicole. I mean, he had all the money in the world, the best engines, the best cars, and everything. When he came to Vermont, he, he found out how tough we were up here. Yeah. And, um, you know, he figured it'd be a cakewalk come up here. And uh, I remember we it was the, we went to Catamount on Saturday. It was the North against the South. And they really touted it, you know. And uh, we went to Catamount. I don't know if that's day one or what. Well, they won the two fifty seventy six. No, seventy six. And the Bob Presley won or whatever. We won a seventy five or Butch, whatever it was. Anyway, it was Catamount, the Arctic two fifty, and then the following Thursday it's up the road for the two hundred lap by centennial. Um Squire convinced them to stay over and he let him practice at the track all week. And Harry Gann Butch Lindley, I don't remember who else, Morgan, 
And uh, so we, yeah, so we drive up on Thursday night on normal field. Come on. They've been practicing all week. They've got this place figured out. And uh, anyway, we come in and we battle the whole race and and we we win the race. And Butch finished second and they interviewed third and then they interviewed Butch. And, and Butch says, uh, you know, well, Butch, you know, you get a second place finish. You know, he said, well, you know, like, you know, like, Dion started in front of me. <laughs> you know, like one spot, <laughs> 200 laps. 200 laps, yeah. <laughs> 200 laps, I started one spot in front of us, and that was his excuse. <laughs> so, a year later, we're back there, and that was the Vermont Centennial, or whatever Centennial, Barry Centennial. Then so he had a 200 lap again. Here it is, north against south. We battle it out. I hit the feud with Robbie, open my big mouth. <laughs> anyway, we do the race. We win the race. Butch finished the second. And uh, Robbie led him most of the way. We got by him. And uh, they're doing the interview. And Butch takes the microphone right away from Squire or whoever was doing it. And says, before you interview Dave, I got to say something. <laughs> I said, I want to apologize for last year <laughs> uh, for saying what I did. Dave just playing out. I'll throw it because I, and, and, and he was a classy little guy. Yeah. Wow. A, a whole a, year, he, a whole whole year, he stooped and he said it. Well, then I took over doing saying stupid things, and they said, "Boy, you and Robbie Krause had quite a battle. It looked like you guys were really using each other." You know, the conversation, and then I said, "What do you think, David?" I said, <laughs> "I'll never forget these words. I've been crucified ever since." I said. I was once told if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. <laughs> oh, my God. That was the dumbest thing I ever said. <laughs> I lost four fans over that. <laughs> it was like, I should have just, you know. <laughs> well, what happened between you and Robbie? Oh, man, we were battling, and he was running me high. And Butch tried to get by him for the longest time, and Robbie, but Robbie was going good, but he was fighting hard to get. He didn't, he didn't do anything unusual. Which is, you use a guy up all you can when you have to, you know? It was just, I just never should have said anything, you know? And a lot of his fans were my fans. I knew personally, and they, they turned on me. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. You know, I shouldn't have said it. It occurs to me that, uh, you know, just before you went NASCAR racing, and really just before Robbie went NASCAR racing at the same time, um, it was you guys up front a lot in the late eighties yeah. and early nineties. And I think it's probably okay to skip ahead here. I do want to circle back to the early eighties because there's a lot to talk about, but, uh, you and Robbie were the Kings. Um, you know, especially when you came back to ACT, um, were you guys, yeah, Robbie, or, or was that, was Robbie, it, how, how was your relationship? We never talked. We, you know, we never, no, we, we, I never really talked with many drivers. I, I I didn't socialize. I I uh, I'd nod. I'd stand next to him during a drivers' meeting. I didn't jump around with anybody. My brothers didn't like me jumping around with people. I mean, you had a job to do. You can when the race is over, you can do whatever you want. But they 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 didn't. They don't. They're not big on the social side of it. They they're very committed. They're very focused. They work real hard. And, and my job is to send that hard work and get it. You know. Uh, me, I, 
I start liking, you know, me and Mike like each other. And when I raced Mike, they said, jeez, oh, he isn't going to. I didn't really try as hard as I should have against Mike because we were friends. He was in trouble that night. I cut him a lot of slack, vice versa, you know. And it's kind of like, you know, you watch a football game and, the, you know, the defensive guy or the offensive guy picks up the defensive guy from the other team, like your pals, to be, what the heck are you doing? You know, it's like <laughs> they wanted me to be 100% not to like the guy that raced. I think they, they, you know, so. But Robbie and I, we raced each other hard. I mean, uh, he's a good driver. I think he's one of the best ever. I think maybe. Robbie's the best. Bobby overall would be the driver I would hire as my driver if I had a team because he's a good team member. He's a great driver. He's smart. He's clean. Bobby, I have probably more respect for Bobby Drag than anyone now that I know him personally. Uh, I see him work with his crew. He's willing to do the dirty work. He never blames his crew. He does his job. He gets 100%. I just, yeah, I, I, I think he's probably the one I admire the most. And I like Rob. I think Rob's got a lot of talent. A lot of talent. But but Bobby would be my choice if you said who's your driver. First choice would be Bobby Dragon. Now, if I say Milk Bowl to you, what does that mean? Best racing format in the world. And someday NASCAR better try it. <laughs> I really think so. If you want to entertain the fans, I think the milk bowl format is what you got to do. You get everything. You time trial, that proves who's got the fastest car. And then you run the second segment, and who knows? And then you've got to go for broke in the third. You've either got to protect your lead, or you've got to go half crazy to try and make up for the, that bad second segment. <laughs> I only won one of those things. And it's my favorite race. I love that race. I, I love the format. I, I think it's the most entertaining. It's the most exciting for me. It's the most exciting for the fans. And it's really exciting for my crew because of the strategy that if you damage the car and it's just, it's my, it's my favorite format. I remember when they were doing, I was talking to Dave Booty and they were saying, you know, different formats, blah, blah, blah. And, and Moody said, I think if you run the milk bowl format, you got the perfect situation. I went, amen, amen. <laughs> so that's what I think of the milk bowl. Did you have uh, a strategy you'd like to go to when you pulled in for milk bowl weekend? You know, you, you the second segment is the curse. That's the curse. First segment takes care of itself. You've got a fast car, good handling car. You qualify near the front. If you can't get the win, get the second. You only got two points. Then you start next to last in the second, the second segment, and that's the tough one. That was the one that always got me. Uh, first segment was no problem. Last segment, I knew what I had to do, but second one was trying to, uh, yeah, I think that one time, probably a few years ago, we had the most segment wins in that race, and uh, but only one win. You know, and that that might be more drive error than anything else. I had a good car, and they didn't really give me a strategy. They let me feel my way through it. You know, they didn't tell me not to do something. It, it, I don't know. Maybe I got impatient. Maybe I, you know, we never had a set strategy. I don't think uh, when when we won all three in '75, 
he had a great car. I shouldn't have risked it all in the third one, but I was so committed to winning. <laughs> that, I had these two little kids come up to me. I don't know if it's in the book or not. But anyway, they, one was a Dragon fan, one was a Dion fan. And we had won the championship the week before. And I did it by stroking and not wrecking. And, and, and they, the Dion fan was really disappointed to see me settle for an eighth-place finish or something like that. He was appalled. You know, and the other kids teased him. The, the, the Dragon fan, these were like 10-year-old kids. <laughs> and so the 10-year-old Dragon fan says, are you coming to the milk bowl? And I said, yeah, of course. And so he says, uh, ask him that question. He said, no, I'm not going to ask him. No, ask him. The other one says, ask him the question. And I'll never forget these words. And I said, okay, are you going to race? Are you going to ride? And it tore me. I said, I will never. I told CJ. I will never do that to win a championship again. You can keep your championship. And when I got to the milk pool, I was still stewing from him making me run so slow to protect that championship. I was on a mission in that milk pool. I didn't care if I lost the whole thing. I was going to win everything in sight that day to, to kill that kid. That's a, yeah, that's a <laughs> knife in the gut right there. Out of the mouths of kids comes a lot of truth. Hmm. And when those two kids come out after the race, they both had, they committed to each other. If Bobby wins, you got to go over and shake his hand. If Dion wins, you got to come over and shake his hand. These two little kids. I don't know how old they are today, but, and uh, that kid gave me the motivation for that race. That was, I was not going to be denied. And when afterwards, that kid come over and <laughs> the Dion fan kid was smiling. <laughs> And the dragon just was, oh boy. <laughs> but that's what Rachel was like. That you really, I actually paid attention to the kids. You guys were, and not just you, but Robbie and Joey Carafas and uh, Johnny Rosati and, you know, everybody, Stub Fadden even. You guys were superheroes and fans cheered for you guys in the 70s. We were. Like, and they don't, we they were. don't cheer like that anymore. Why is well, that? Well, you know, we used to autograph those kids' hands and arms every Thursday night. And they went to school the next day, and the teacher, and I had them say, oh, my God, what the heck is on? I remember the, the minister at the bottom of the hill, he had a bunch of the kids in the thing. He became a fan, and he came up the hill to see what these kids were talking about. And he came over to me and asked me, he said, could I get you to come to the church on your way to the race? So we got... Uh, church service for the kids or Bible study or something. I said, sure, I don't mind. So we go, we go early for the church at the bottom of the hill. We unload the car in the parking lot and everything as a favor to them because a lot of these kids, he says, you, 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 you admire these kids. And I think it'll help. So, <laughs> so we do the whole thing. We load the car <laughs> and the kids are called into the church. For the service. Well, me and Billy, my best buddy that died, he, we're rolling out, and the minister steps right in front of the bus and he goes, Whoa, where are you going? We're going to the race. That's fine. You're not coming into the church? No, we got to get to the track. He says, No, I just called the track. It's not opening up for another hour. <laughs> I think you better finish the job and come in the church with the Well, I'm not believing God. I'm Christian. 
So we went in. And we had to finish the job and sit at the trench with the kids. So it was time to go. And then off we went to the races. <laughs> <laughs> it was just funny the way it was. That, that minister ended up getting cancer and died very young. His daughter was calling me all the time, come see my dad. I mean, it, it starts out as a simple thing, and it turns into a whole thing. Whole thing that affects you personally it has nothing to do with racing. In the end, you, they become fans or friends, and it's, it's amazing how it branches out. You know, it started out because they they like to see a race, and then they become a friend or a fan, and then they become a bigger friend. And then, uh, you know, it's just, I was saying, I was talking to some friends today. We went out, and I sit back the race and say, think of the people that you met and. Uh, friends and things because you raced it's just not the race even today even today now you're having this great run and all this success and then 1983 thunder road big flip with keith kavanaugh brothers run out on the track big fight curly throws you out nascar suspends you which pretty much puts an end to the cup stuff what do you remember yeah, did, about that? Uh, Tom was big picture and I was little picture. And we talked before he died. I went up and spent two hours with him. And Tom was doing what was right for the big picture. And I never saw the big picture. I never saw it until almost the end. I did what was right for my team and my career. And, uh, and I was somewhat aware of big picture. And... You know, the Skull Bandit and U.S. Tobacco and Tom was expanding the sport. And I'm sure he made some promises to, to Chuck Bound and everything. You come, I'll promote you. And Chuck couldn't beat any of them. Couldn't beat us, couldn't beat Dick, couldn't beat Bobby. Chuck, was, I don't know if he was a good driver, a bad driver, a mediocre driver. Had the best of everything. And Tom, Tom Curley, I think, was getting desperate. And he was, you know, they took a hundred. Chuck was the only one that could run the V6. McCabe was going to build one, and he said, no, you can't. You know, they, they were giving Chuck every advantage, and that's so common. I was naive. I didn't, and it had reached its, you know, we'd run water for the sun. It was supposed to dry up on the road, and someone told me they just gave Chuck another hundred pound weight break. Now he's 200 pounds like, oh, they gave him a softer tire. They gave him this, and they they barely, and and I was I heard that, and I was walking across the pit. Tom was walking across the pit, and I said, "Tom," he said, "What?" We didn't get along anyway, and I said, "I hear you get found another hundred." He says, "None of your damn business." You know, I said, "How far are you going to go with this?" He says, "None of your business," and he said, "Watch yourself." He pointed at me. Got to watch yourself, and then the rest is history. You know, that's, whether he that finger pointed backwards right up your nose. Like that was, had. it's over. And after it happened, and uh, we, he came over, he said, I just called the state police, and you got 15 minutes to load this car, and if it's not loaded and off the premises in 15 minutes, you're going to jail. And I said, what? He says, I'm serious. You're going to jail. You're trespassing. And uh, we pushed that car in that bus, tried to get out of there because he was serious because he said I'm going to take you down and uh, we were pulling out the gate and he stepped in front he said open the door I thought he was saying we were too late and he got on he said I told you I'd get you I got you and 
if you think you go and win the cup races, I already made the phone call. That's gone too. It done. And I said, Oh. He said, How old are you? How old are you anyway, Dion? I said, I turned forty this year. You're too damn to be old to be racing and he would say, Get the hell off the property. And that's the God's honest truth, every word. Holy shit. And I came back and supported that man. And everyone said, we cannot. And he started the act tour. I was the first person he called. And I went, why in the heck would I ever? <laughs> I still don't know today. <laughs> I don't know. I think I love the fans so much. I was willing to sell my soul to go back to Thunder Road. And, uh, but Tom, you know, and we talked about it. And I said, you ended my career. And I fought back. And when we beat Joey Carapas on the last lap at Oxford that day, I said, yeah, take that one. And he went, son of a bitch. The worst day of my life, he told people, to have Dion come back and do that. It was like, <laughs> it was like, but I, I forgave him. He forgave me. I did. It was, he was looking out for the sport. I was looking out for me. And. I think he got to the extreme, and I got to the extreme, and we were two hard-headed Irishmen, and we needed someone to, <laughs> with reasons to step between us, I guess. <laughs> it was just, but, you know, people said, to get along? I said, yeah. I, he was on his tower asking me to go up and spend some time with him. I ended up spending three hours with him, and, and uh, we patched up all our differences. We talked about dying, and uh, we were good when he left. We were friends, and I felt bad, and I cried like a baby when I got the word. You know, mm-hmm. he was uh, an icon. You know, to me, what he did, even though he was the enemy, I admired him. <laughs> How important was it for you to have that closure with that oh, chapter of your life? After Thirty-five years. Oh God, that, I was just going to Vermont, just traveling up to see the family, and I had no intention and. And then I got off at the Waterbury exit just to go by the the radio station, just to see Ken. And uh, Dollar was there, and Dollar said, please go see Tom. And I said, you think he wants to see me? So oh, God, yes. And I went up, and he was so happy. He changed oxygen bottles one time while I was there. And, and we talked and had a great time. And we, he said, <laughs> I think he said something. There isn't, there wasn't, there's no one left like you, Dion. You and your brother. Now I have great kids. I'm proud of them, but there's no one left like you guys. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, we had a great time. I, I, and when he died, I was so glad, you know, that we were both at peace with each other. We forgave each other and we said, we thought we were doing the right thing, both of us. But neither one of us backed down. You know, he would never back down. I would never back down. No. That's just our personality. <laughs> Well, what were your brothers thinking when all this is happening? Well, that's a good question. You know, we were united. There wasn't a problem. I don't think they were in favor of us going back, you know, when I went back and forgave them. And they were, that was too fresh in their mind. And I just, I just want to go back to Thunder Road. (laughs) You know, I want to go back. So, but, you know, I never totally committed. You saw me with the, the NASCAR emblem on my fire suit and the thing. I never committed to either series after that. I never, NASCAR thought they had me. Well, they didn't. And I never had me either. I, I remained, 
I remained independent after that. When I wanted to go to Thunder Road, I'd go. You know, we'd run Holland Speedway out by Buffalo on a Saturday night to be at Thunder Road the next day. You know, with the ACA. I just, I just, from that on, I only raced for the fans. I didn't race for the sanctioning bodies. I, I kind of ignored the sanctioning bodies. All I knew was the sanctioning body controlled the, controlled the place I wanted to be. If I wanted to race Oxford, I had to comply with NASCAR. If I wanted to race Thunder Road, I had to comply. So I complied with both organizations, so I was able to go to the tracks I loved. And, and uh, that's how I handled it. I, I was never committed to them. There was a really strong period where you, uh, immediately after that deal with Curly in 83, where you guys were independent all the way. I mean, you ran Outlaw, and it was a fabulous, at least on the stats ledger, uh, a fabulous time in your career. And, and you know, you became a legend. If you weren't already at Oxford, you became a legend at Oxford because of those open comp shows. Yeah, I think people respect you for fighting even if you're wrong. I got people I don't like and I don't agree with, but the fact they fight so hard for what they do believe in, I respect them for that. So 83, you know, the, the 250 shortly after the incident, the next race was the Oxford 250, and it, it's a, you know, what do you call an outlaw race. Curly didn't control it. And Curly called Bob Bear, and uh, Bob Bear called me. We're working on the car to go to 250, and, and Bob, he's the deal. I Tom Curley just called me. I said, yeah. And he threatened to pull all his cars out if I let you race. I said, what? He said, he's got 40 cars from the 250. He's going to pull all 40 out if you're there. So Bob's telling me I can't come. I'm waiting for, you know, he's telling me the story. I'm on the phone. And I said, so I can't come? And he said, I told him I don't have any trouble with you. He still hasn't told me whether I can come. I thought he's softening the blow. And finally, well, can I come? He still won't answer. But what else did Curly say? Well, Bob, you're not going to have much of a race if I pull 40, 40 cars. And Bob paused me and said, I don't have any problem with the Dion. Don't tell me how to run my racetrack. I've never had problems with the Dion. Tom keeps threatening him and finally. So, so what did you tell him, Bob? I told him, well, if you're not going, to, if you're going to keep forty cars out of it, this is going to be the easiest two fifty deal and ever wins this year. <laughs> what does that I said, "Can I kick out?" He said, "Yeah, but I'm going to be watching you, boys." <laughs> so That's we power, go. Dave. So, so we go. We stayed away from. We painted the guy yellow. We painted the car yellow because it was so different. We had a new body put on the car. And we rode on the back. And I don't know if you remember. Did you see it, Justin? I don't know how old you are. Well, that's I, I was born in '83, but I've you know I've studied. <laughs> okay, here's what we put. This is what we come up with. We painted it yellow, just for the hell of it. Just <laughs> go unnoticed, I guess. <laughs> and I rode on the back. We're from New Hampshire. Live free or die. <laughs> That was all across the back. You got the message? (laughs) We go, we stayed, we kept way away from everyone. We pitted down with street stock just to stay away from everybody. Bob Bear pulls up. (laughs) Him and Dick, they pull up. Rogers says, oh no, Bob's here. Dion, 
get over here. I walk over. For Christ's sake, Dion, don't cause any trouble for this. I won't, Bob. I won't. Okay. Have a good day. And off he goes. <laughs> and I, when Bob got the car accident years ago, I wrote him a letter in the hospital and I just told him, you know, you've always been there, Bob. You always, you know, <laughs> you do what you think is right. You back up people. I said, you're my hero. And uh, we were always close. You know, he always fought for us. And, uh, so we ran the race and, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We didn't have the Hollywood finish. You know, we basically just, just, just ran <laughs> for all fields. But at least we raced and, and then we started running, uh, stick on. We liked that. We went down with an outlaw car and, you know, it was enemy territory. But we worked our way up to stop beating them and winning. And, you know, we were out of NASCAR. We were, we'll, we'll go on. We'll go on. You know, sad, you know, read about Thunder Road and stuff like that. And knew we couldn't go, but, you know, my sponsor, uh, Stuart, and then to pay the fine. I said, I'm not paying the fine. Well, $3,000 fine. They reduced the fine. We appealed it. Roger went to Daytona. We went to the appeal process in Dover. And uh, Curly was there. He told his story. We told ours. And, they said, you bring your car, Dion? I said, oh, I knew how the appeal process was going to end up, so we just bought a regular NASCAR bump, flipped out. <laughs> no, we're going home. So you have to race? Nah, we're going home. <laughs> we bought, we, so Curly sat in the actor, and the actor is really starting to take off. Pretty successful. NASCAR got wind of it. They called me up and said, uh, we're thinking of coming back. I said, really? He said, we'd like you to be part of our new NASCAR, Rob Bush series up there. And I said, why me? They said, why me? And they said, well, Curly was the problem. And, and, and I went, Curly might have been the initial problem, but you were the real problem because you had a chance to look at this. And, you know, and, uh, you know we told them that he was, Rule him with an iron fist, you know, and then they threw him out yeah. after, you know, yeah. after. But, and we told NASCAR, I mean, all they had to do was lean him in. That's all. Hmm. And they, they refused. And so they said, well, we're going to start a push series. We'd like to have you back. And uh, what would it take to get you back? Just freaking comical. How about if we get the fourth 100 pound weight break? Why are you going to get the fourth 100 pound weight break? We're trying to help you. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know? I said, yeah, I then they're like just doing what work. Curly did for Chuck Bown. Yeah. So they they said, how about if we let you run the Mustang? You going to let me run a Mustang? I mean, they offered me everything, and I told them, nah, no. So, so you're staying with Curly, the guy that threw you out. <laughs> they couldn't figure it out. Matter of fact, I couldn't figure it out either. But Curly was more honest than they were. And, you know, when we had to go back, when Oxford became a NASCAR race, and I had to build a NASCAR car and go back to run the 250, it was like, oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and NASCAR, you know, we fought NASCAR more harder than we fought Curly because they were so unfair. Hmm. You know, they just told us to keep our mouth shut. And, and they said, we can't stand by and watch an injustice. It was just not right. And I might have been way more successful if I would have shut my mouth. 
So you sell your soul to the devil, in your words, to get back to Thunder Road. How much does that place mean to you, even to this day, when you can still walk in to the gates, even though you might not be racing, if it's a you know, milk bowl parade of champions or whatever it may be, what does that crowd mean to you? I don't know. I haven't had time with that, so I don't go. My brother Roger goes. I, I, I only went, I went once after Tom died to see Dollar, and then I went two years ago to help my friend Timmy Parkman with his son. He's a real good friend of mine. He asked if I'd come up and help his son, and I only went there for that reason, and then, and then when the the main event started, I just wanted to go hide somewhere. <laughs> I just felt, you know, I wanted to be out there so bad, and I I don't I don't deal with it well. I don't even I don't even know how I feel. I just stay away from it. I I have trouble with it. I can't. Do you I miss it so bad? You know, I'm I'm older, and it's part of life. You know, the young take over, and the old step aside, and um, I don't know. I got so many happy memories there, and now I just go as a spectator. And every now and then I see someone that knows me, and you know, but ninety percent of the people don't know who I am. I could pretty well sit anywhere on the grandstands, and nobody knows who I am. So yeah, I think I think you're wrong about that, Dave. I don't know if it just feels that. Maybe I feel that way. Roger goes and he sees people and has a great time. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> and he friend, stands you know? out. Do you ever yeah. see like a Joey LeCare and think, God, I might still be able to do it one more time? Clem Despo. Yeah, but I, I help. I don't know. I, I think my fans help me to such standard that I. You know, I go home and get a top by a clinician. They'd say that's pretty good for an old man. And I don't know, I held myself. I just felt as though I owed him more than that. You know, they used to see me win. They used to see me part of the show. And then I kind of come in as a, oh, he did okay for an old guy. <laughs> I don't want that. I don't want that. You know, I wouldn't have any problem going there if it was some sort of an event, but not a race. Like, I go to things to honor people or, like Waterbury. I go to things, but if there's an actual race going on, I don't want to be around it. It's just something about it. It's a, that day is supposed to be about the race, not about the has-beens. It's something about it. They don't mix well with me <laughs> to go there. You know, I, I kind of, you know, when they do the milk ball thing, and I'd like Hannaford and different guys were out there. It was okay, you know. I, I don't know. I just, I feel so out of place. You know, Roger doesn't. Roger feels pretty good. I, I just, I kind of hide. <laughs> I don't know why. I never got over it. And I haven't driven since all that. And I still had trouble going near a racetrack. And I've never, it's never changed. Roger says, you're going. No. Nope. No. Nope. You don't want to go? No. Nope. You think about going? No. Nope. <laughs> just, I, I, I'm not dealing with it well. Well, I mean, I hear you. Um, and, and to a degree, I think I understand what you're saying. But there's a dwarf car racing around New Hampshire this year that's painted Dion Brothers Orange with a white 29 on it. I mean, there's still, and that that's uh, yeah, I love that. A, a buddy oh, of mine that. who you know he's our age, and you know I, I think that you're underestimating yourself about how <laughs> how many fans still know you. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Roger tells me that, and I go, I, I just don't know what to do. Well, 
I, I think about going, and I change my mind. Or I chicken out even. I say, I can't go. I can't go. Can't mm. go. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't found a comfort zone to go. Something about it, you know. Uh, I don't have a purpose. Roger right. actually works on cars, yeah. you know. It's like I'm a driver. I, you know, I don't have a job. <laughs> yeah, your identity for so long was, you know, the winning race car driver, and now you're not the race car driver. So it's like you're missing. Missing the identity. It, you're wondering yeah, why these right. people want to talk to you when you're not Yeah, I know it exactly when they do. And, I, I, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I've never figured out how to do it, how to go and not be embarrassed. Or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I watched, like, Richie Petty and Daryl Walter Polrich then, and then people started laughing at it, and out comes the NASCAR with provisionals to get him in the race and and I'm like, oh God, that's like that's embarrassing. You know, if they would have quit two years before that they would be held in such even the young people would remember him great instead of oh that clown, you know, with Daryl and stuff. It's like, geez, I don't want to be one of those <laughs> you know, dippity dippity or whatever he says, you know. <laughs> if somebody if somebody put a car together for you whether it was your brothers or anybody else, a, a car that was capable of winning a race, would you do it? I don't think my brothers would let me. I I hinted around uh, when Wayne Hellwell died because Bruce used to be on my team, yeah. you know, driving it if he was sick because he has those illnesses of building in. And, but they never encouraged me. When I got out, my brothers never encouraged me ever to go back. They never, I kept hinting, hey, we ought to go back. We ought to do They never got a response out of them. I don't know if they just, I don't know. They they were definitely not on board with me driving again for some reason. But, you know, I never asked them why. I just didn't want to start a family feud. Like, I, you know, like, you don't think I can do it? You know? <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just said, I just said it. Well, let's. Let's circle back to to the final you know decade or so, two decades of your career. I guess you did go back to NASCAR, um, and you guys aren't spring chickens either. At that point, you're you're well into your fifties. You've been doing it a long time. Yep. Why why go full time Bush North Racing? Why chase that championship? You know, I was never a, a points chaser anyway. One of you, but I I remember going to Michael. Mike's house one night. I was going to Foxwood and Mike's on the way back. So one day I just decided to go by the speed shop to sell us, you know, where Julie works. And mm -hmm. I just popped in to say, hey, how's it going? And, and Julie said, uh, what are you doing here, Dave? And we were racing each other hard at that time. I said, oh, I just thought I'd say hi. You know, it's Mike's birthday today? I said, no. Could you come to the house and surprise him? So Anyway, Julie talked to me, and I go to the house. Mike's there. And uh, anyway, I'll get to the point of the story. So all his trophies, all his awards, it's like a shrine. You can't even find my trophies. I mean, I gave them away. They're broken. They're laying in a pile. It's like I never built a shrine. Nothing. I did it, and and that was it. I never, I don't have anything showing, you know. <laughs> and... And Mike and I got talking, and we got talking championship versus pacing. And he said to me, you think it's easy to win a championship? I said, 
No, I didn't say that. I just think that the race that day is more important than the championship at the end of the year. Because he said, no, he says, uh, it's harder to win a championship than win a race. And uh, we disagree. And anyway, we started the year off good in 1996, won the race. And now we're the point leader. And we got swept up in that. And we, we led all the way right to the end. We never lost the lead. And uh, we got down to the last race with Lion Rock, and Mike DeMolke said, so you think winning a championship is easy, huh? And I I said, why? He said, you're a little nervous, aren't you? I said, I'm scared to death. He said, now you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he said, you can lose it all today. You ran 21 races. You did everything right, and you can throw it away today. You think that's pressure? I said, never had so much pressure in my life. And I didn't. I wasn't capable of driving around the street, never, you know, driving around the block, never driving around a racetrack. I was so out of sorts. And, uh, and uh, then I, I, then I had respect for people that won championships. You know, it was, uh, and then I put a lot of value in it. And I said, wow, I did it. I did it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm pretty proud of it because I'm not a championship type driver and I was no good on road courses. I thought it was a great accomplishment at our age. I was 53 years old when we won that championship with a, you know, all volunteer crew. Had a great sponsor in Berlin City and Continental, no doubt about it. I had a great sponsor, but I had great people. And I was, I was pretty proud of that. And that was, I'm glad I did. I'm glad Mike kind of forced me into going for that championship because he encouraged me to to see what it felt like and it, it, it was I still bring it up a lot and brag about it a lot <laughs> I, I think you should do <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I remember standing up there 53 years old and I had to beat Andy Santera at the end you know the new star and uh, it was it was a thrill and I got a chance to thank every single person right down the line I probably took way too much time up on stage but I I made sure everyone got, you know, got credit for what they did. All the companies, right down to comp cams, helping me with the engines and the fuel company and the shock company and the, obviously the crew. And and uh, it, it was my chance to get up and, <laughs> you know, mention a lot of people. That, that, that was important. And it meant so much to my brothers. They proved they could do it. They, they gave me a winning car. I think we completed all but one lap that year to win that championship. And that included two road courses and, you know, I, I don't know if we went to Nazareth and Loudon. I mean, no, Loudon was, yeah, Loudon was, you know, it was pretty good for an old team to do what we did. Absolutely. At what point do you start seeing the clock ticking down on your career? Do you start, you know, in that late nineties? Is it right up until you know that two thousand five mark? When do you start kind of seeing your own mortality as the race car driver? I didn't, I never saw it. That wasn't the reason I got out. There was two reasons I got out. It wasn't because I didn't think I could win. I didn't. No, I never. Right up until the end, I still thought I was capable. Uh, my eyesight was real good. Uh, everything was good. main reason I got out of NASCAR was they came out with a spec motor. 
uh, and that was almost like what Curly did with the crate motor. That that took the passion out of it for me. I didn't think it was that important to race anymore. My my goal almost from the beginning was to be the biggest pain in the ass the Chevrolet people ever had. <laughs> I mm. held their feet to the fire. You're not going to get a pass on this one. You're going to have to deal with this Ford. And I was proud of that and built my own engines. Uh, I, I was real proud of that Ford, Ford element, that I was the savior for the Ford people most of the time. I really took that serious. I was proud of the fact. Uh, and when NASCAR introduced the spec motor at the end of the year, and I think it was 06, they were so proud of that. Well, the motors are going to, it's not going to be Chevy. It's not going to be Ford. It's going to be, and I went, what's the sense of racing? <laughs> and I said to them, why are we racing? They said, well, see, my, my thing, and I know it's old fashioned. Racing is about the automobile to me, not the driver. I root for the automobile. I do, I don't care who drives it. I, you know, I just, I just love the automobile. I love the the, the, the competition among the manufacturers, so the four people can brag about their car. Um, and they were taking that away. And then Berlin City got sold at that time. But Danny and Elaine offered to sponsor me with personal money, and I said I can't take personal money. And it was time for them to sell Berlin City because. George Gillette bought it, and it was $120 million, so you know, I said, you probably ought to sell it. So I thought about getting another sponsor, and then I thought, no, I want to be remembered for driving the Berlin City car. They were too good to me. I don't want to go one more year with another sponsor, and I wanted to be remembered when you say Berlin City or Dave Dion. I did that for Danny. I said, you know, and we talked when I saw him two weeks ago. I said, I couldn't ruin that name and that relationship, you know. It was just personal stuff. My brothers never won. You know, they never said anything about quitting. It just, when the next year came, we just never came back. It just, hmm. it just seemed like it was the right time to walk away. And the fans called me, you come to that. And I said, I don't think so. It was, it was strange. It was, it was not planned. I put on that tribute card that I give to people. Nobody ever saw me come into the sport. Nobody ever saw me leave. I just did my thing in between. You know, there was no rocking chair out on the start finish line. There was no big hurrah when I walked in the first time. It was just <laughs> came in quiet, went out quiet. Nobody saw it. Either way, it was, I thought it was the classic way to do it. I just don't like this, yeah. this whole big celebration and all that. I just, I just I was never comfortable with it. I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny you mentioned the, whether or not people recognize you or they'll remember or whatever it may be. When you see what impact you had on someone like a Wayne Hallowell and obviously, yeah. you know, they got the almost identical car and he goes out and he wins some championships. And what does that mean for you? That's, that's kind of strange because everything with Bruce is, is, is what you said. He, he kept it alive as a tribute. And Wayne and I probably talked three times in my lifetime. I don't know him real good. Um, he is self-made. 
It's nothing that I ever did that influenced his success. He's done it all on his own. Now, Bruce, that, on the other hand, yes, he, he learned a lot. Wayne's very talented. Wayne, but he, he's doing it and did it all on his own. He has no, I had no influence, no input, no, like I said, we've talked three times in my life. I said, hi, seen him in New Smyrna. <laughs> it's, that connection doesn't exist. It's not there, but the connection with Bruce is Bruce said that's the way the car's got to be painted. And Wayne, I don't think Wayne, in my opinion, Wayne doesn't want it. Wayne doesn't. Wayne doesn't want any of that Dion baggage. In my opinion, and I, I could be wrong. I don't think Wayne wants any of it. That's Bruce, and Bruce demand. You know, they they're kind of partners, and Bruce. That was important to Bruce. I don't think Wayne even likes it, to be honest with him. But to the fans, they see it carried on. But I, no, I don't yeah. think it's. Right. I don't think Wayne could get rid of it at this point. I think Wayne would like to see it all go away and reestablish and come up with his own. He 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 deserves his own identity with no baggage from being. I really think so. I think I wouldn't blame him at all if he was was upset by Bruce making him carry on with that. I I you know. So that's kind of an inside story for you there. <laughs> that's only my opinion, but I can react to it just from, you know, hearing people and hearing him. But he does, you know, he doesn't need to be in my shadows. He's, he's really great. And, you know, he deserved to get all the credit, not some of the credit. Uh, Dave, you know, without having a plan for retirement, in retrospect now, 15, and even 20 years later, um, yeah, how, right. well, but how important was it looking back now, uh, that your final two wins were at Thunder Road and Oxford, which were really your home tracks for most of your oh, career? Oh God, that's everything. That's everything. That's everything. Yeah. That, that going back to the official snowflower race that has got basically booted out of Oxford for various reasons. And Steve, uh, um, Gary Dwine or something worked for um, Fisher Snowplow. And he was a Ford guy and he drove a race car. And, and I think he had a lot to do with getting sponsorship and getting NASCAR back in because he played a big part that day. And to go back to Oxford and see people and run the Bush car, I saw one old man, Tiger White, was a famous racer. He was there. He was pretty close with that band. We did an autograph session under the back, under the grandstands that night. It was the big return of NASCAR. And I remember sitting there and those people lined up. And along comes this tiny or whatever year old man, basically, and says, leans over and says, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, of course I do. You're Tiger White. He said, do you remember me? I said, of course I do. You're a legend up here. He says, I'm only here because of you, Dion. And I went, wow, that old man couldn't even walk, and he made it to that race to basically say goodbye. He died shortly after. And it was like, that That kind of stuff affects me a lot. Something he's saying that, you know, it's always the fan with me. <laughs> it always goes back to the fan. They're the ones that touch me, those two little kids. And that, that, they've been my motivation. And it could be because I have the biggest ego in the world. Who knows? I just, but that's. That's my motivation. I find my strength in the fans. I want to use your own words against you now because you're telling us that you avoid racetracks. Um, 
but I see a whole lot of that. I could see that situation uh, with people young and old uh, coming up to you and, and telling you, you know, even if it's a young kid who never saw your race, there's those granite monuments all over Thunder Road and your name's on every one of them yeah, multiple I, times. My friend took a picture. My friend Jimmy took a picture of that when he went to the races and he framed them and he mailed them to Florida and they hang on the wall in my, in my room. And it's all those plaques, all in little things, you know, because when he went and showed it, took his family, his young family to the track and they saw that and they knew me, but they didn't know much about my history. And they went, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know we had won that much. And then uh, just you factor in that when we went at Thunder Road on Memorial Day, we raced in Hall in New York and we won three in a row Memorial Day races out there. It's like the good Lord smiled down on me on Memorial Day. He really did. I mean, I could have the worst car at the track and the worst luck and the whole thing, and the good Lord smiled down, and all of a sudden, I magically ended up in victory lane. I, I, bet, I bet half of those things probably didn't. We weren't a good enough car to be there, but the circumstances put me there. I actually, And then the others, I think we were the dominant car, but I'd say half of those was just plain. I don't know if I won't use the word luck, Kate. Or whatever, uh, but it really saved our career. That finally getting the season on track at Thunder Road, and then we went on. Uh, 1989, we went to uh, um, Delaware Speedway in Ontario and blew two engines that night. Blew one in practice, blew one at the feature, and worked on it all night. Went to Salford Beach and blew that one. So we come home with three blown engines, totally bankrupt. And John Keever and I passed an engine together to run my, what I called my last race. And we won the race and turned it all around again. Same, same old Memorial Day uh, <laughs> lock or whatever you're calling. But the fact that almost everyone on the team is a veteran, too. It's very rewarding. All my brothers are veterans. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I think it's, I think it's poetic justice. You know, it's going to have luck, have it on that day, you know. And as we record this, we are an hour and 15 minutes away from Memorial Day. And that fact is not lost on us either. And, you know, obviously, no, no, you know, no, that, that's kind I, of a, a reason why we wanted to have you on this weekend. I was thinking that I told my friend that I said, you, you know, I told him you took over up there and I had spoke to you and you're doing a wonderful job, especially for a young guy. And that, that just meant a lot to be a young guy with your passion. I told you that before. And I said, I think it's got something to do with Memorial Day. And it's an honor that uh, you would let me do this on Memorial Day. I mean, this means more than you realize to me. The pleasure is on this side of the microphone, trust me, for both of us. I, it's, well, I, it, I like the yeah. questions, and I like I can see your passion. I can see you're committed to this. This isn't just, let's just do our thing and move on. I mean, you, I can tell you're into it. You, you're really interested. You've got really good questions. You're really... You want to look inside me, and I—I I don't mind that. I don't mind that. I—I I mean, I'd probably get embarrassed tomorrow if I do. But you know, it's like the book. Dave Booney come up with the title of that book strictly for that reason, life wide open. Because when I speak to someone, I speak as honest and as, as I can. And the next day, I say, I shouldn't have said all that stuff, but that's just—you <laughs> got to. That's the way it is. I did the book and proud of it. I, I've never read the book. I don't know what it says. I've never read that book. Well, I, I read it three times. Too embarrassed to read it. <laughs> I'm actually too embarrassed to read it. I have fans come and have me autograph it and tell me stories. 
and they'll say, "Oh, I like the pot and the pork with this," and I go, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah." You know, <laughs> it's like I'm not remembering from the written word. I'm remembering it from the actual thing. Right. If right. I knew what the book said, I would try and respond to the way it's written. You know, but I don't know what's written. <laughs> and Lou Boyd says, "Are you ever going to read it?" That's the book company. I said, "On my deathbed." I'm going to finally read it. And he said, not tell. I said, no. When, when, when it's almost over, I'm going to read it. <laughs> Unless I get killed in a car crash or something. <laughs> kind uh, of a funny way to look at it, I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> just took a turn here. You know? minus, minus the <laughs> car right. crash. And it, and it, well, in the butcher, you know, I got one here, I got one there. There's one in the house. Somebody picked it up today when I had my friends from Boston here. And they look on this great book, and I just looked at it, and I go, I'd really like to open it up, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably never face anybody again if I read what's in there. <laughs> Can I almost, in a way, re- relate. I mean, we've done radio for a long time and some TV stuff. I think yeah. I started in 2004 yeah. doing radio and some TV, mostly all sports broadcasting. And to this day, right. I still I hate listening to myself. Yes, yeah, and that was oh god when I was in I would, I, co- college. Yeah. They would always that was part of it. You had to critique your own work, and I hated it. And I listen oh, yeah. when we do each of these podcasts. I edit them all, <laughs> and I listen to each podcast. I probably end up listening to it about three times through, between all the <laughs> editing and you know, the final right. product and God, I, I can't stand listening to myself and my wife tells me I sound great, but it just, in my ears, it just doesn't sound right. I tell, I tell people I live in the moment. I'm a hundred percent in with you guys right now. We're talking about something I love. You're asking wonderful questions. I'm reliving my career and my life and I'm a hundred percent in. You can ask me anything. Tomorrow, I wouldn't dare listen to what we talked about and hear my answers to the whole thing. I would go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I should have thought that out better. Oh, I should have. <laughs> it's just, just the way it is. I won't even watch one of my races. I remember my daughter used to show, always watch that 85 to 50 with one on the last lap with her friends. She just little. And I'd see her playing it, and then the kids would be on the floor. I might watch a little, and then, oh, you were great. And all I see is my mistakes. That's all I see is the mistakes I make. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, my God. <laughs> In the race that you won, yeah. Yeah, and I still see all my mistakes. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't want to watch it. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just weird. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm like most of them. I, I'm not even like my brothers the way I handled the race, and they look at me sometimes like, uh, but I'm genuine, you know. With, I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think they said at one time, I think we put the right guy in the car. <laughs> Maybe he was the right one to drive, not the, the last job. <laughs> All right, we got a few quick hitters for you, and then we're going to let you go. And thank you again okay. for giving us so much time today. No, thank you. Yeah. No, it worked both ways, guys. Uh, first off, who was one of the most underrated 
drivers you ever raced against? Maybe a guy that didn't get the shine that some of the big names got, but could really, you know, wheel a car. Wow, that's a wonderful question. Boy, oh boy. Underrated because, well, I've got a good friend of Polarity Racing Cock his whole life. He's a tough competitor. He's a wonderful guy now that I know him as a person. He's my age. His name's Jimmy Wilkins. He's a big name at Seacock, but he never got, he didn't have much recruit, didn't have much money. So I remember racing with him. So I'm going to pick my friend Jimmy Wilkins. That he, he, I'm going to pick him. I think he was a tremendous talent that never had the surroundings to make it to the top. Yeah, he, he definitely won some races um, for sure at Seacock. Yep. Absolutely. Now, um, the people I raced at Act and NASCAR and Oxford and everything, I really don't know. You know, I, I don't want to be making something up. I, nobody jumps out at me uh, because you don't know the circumstances behind the people you race. You don't know how good their equipment is. You don't know their support. You only take them at face value when you're out on the race track with them. They might have a hotter engine that's worth 70000 and right. you might think that, you know, so I, I don't no, nothing really jumps out at me. The question that I always ask everybody, uh, it's my favorite one that I've ever come up with, is what is the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? Uh, in the race car itself, um, well, there's a lot of them, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've done a lot of dumb stuff. When they start overheating. <laughs> and, and then I'm fairly spot on engines, but to this day, when you got an overheated car, and then all of a sudden it's not overheating, and you say it magically fixes itself, it's because there's no water on the sensor because it's all out of the motor. It's just like, yeah. hey, it's finally cooling off. <laughs> you fry the motor. <laughs> if there's no, nothing on the sensor because it's only air, it won't read. I just, I just, I burned up more engines thinking magically it fixed itself. <laughs> And you and can't an scream at the builder. engine builder because you're the guy. I'm not the engine builder. <laughs> if I was driving and dumb things, oh, I don't know. I've made every mistake there is. When I see people do dumb things, like that was me somewhere down the line. That, you know, fortunately they forgave me. Fortunately they never fired me. Um, <laughs> uh, I think if I would have drove for other people, I'd been fired a number of times. My brothers put up with me because family was more important than anything. So, yeah, they can't get you know, you. we tolerated each other. We forgave each other. We never, ever thought about, you know, moving on. Other than that incident with Paul and Roger, we stayed together as a team. Through the worst of times, we were never going to break up the family or the team. I think I know probably the answer to this last question, but if you're on a long road trip to a racetrack, who do you want riding shotgun with you? Shotgun to talk to or shotgun someone you like being around or, or dealer's choice just who yeah. do you want riding with you if you got a long road you're, trip you're driving to the race <laughs> let me think who would i want next to me <laughs> uh, let me throw what out because buddy baker was the grand master of thunder road one year do you remember that justin no, sure. that was that yeah. way before you yeah and after the race Ken said to me, 
Dave, are you going to Milton or are you going to New Hampshire? No, I'm going back to Milton. He said, you mind take it by your bacon to the airport? <laughs> that was a wonderful ride. <laughs> I love listening to that southern thing. He opened up and I laughed and, and then we just had the greatest time. But, you know, I only known him from watching him on TV. And that was a thrill for me. And he, he entertained me and I went, wow, I wish this trip was longer. <laughs> Did he know who you were? No, not really. I don't think any of them really knew who I was. You know, they took, you know, most of them didn't. No, that's the sad thing is, you know, where I'm down in Daytona, they don't know anybody up here. You can you can win eight parts of fifties and you know, bowls and track championships and everything, and, and it, it carries no clout down south at all. It's mm. sad. And I went down south in 1976. I went to Columbia Speedway. Ken, Ken Square got me $100 deal money, so I went down, and they sent me to Hickory, and then he stopped at Southside in Richmond on the way home. And I am more known for those three races in this country than anything I ever did. More than the 250s or milk bowls or anything. That People still talk to me about that. I went down and played in their sandbox, and they went, wow. And that was the only credibility I ever got was to actually go down there. And I didn't beat them, but I got close. And they remember those. That was 1976. And, mm. that, you know, it's sad that if you're from New England in this corner of the world, you, you, don't, you really don't get any credit for it. You've got to go down there. That's why Ken Squire was always sending up now. You're never going to make it if you don't go down there. You know, even though they come up and try to speed us at the 250, and we beat them, it still just doesn't register with them down there on the beach stage. That is wild. Bonus question because it just popped in my head. Uh, who's a bigger star in their prime, you at Thunder Road or Cabana in Canada? <laughs> wow. Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> well, he's a national champion, and I'm just a local, just a local track, you know. To them, he he is Kansas, or you know, other than uh, Junior Hanley or Don Beatham at the time, they were fighting for that. But yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, Cabana when he shows up, he's like Elvis and Richard Petty and everything else. I'm just I'm just more known for these little tracks. I mean, I'm I'm fine with that. You know, when I got the award at our club, it was at, um, you know they they we have a bunch of awards and. The lesser of all the awards is called the Saturday Night Hero, which means you're just a local guy. Uh, and as they got to know me later, they said, we really cheated you on that award. You accomplished way more than that. I said, no, no, I'm proud of that award. Well, wouldn't you like one of the Pioneer Awards or the, this award? No, no, I want the Saturday Night Hero Award. That means that I, at my local track, you know, I'm more proud of that. I'm proud of my local track and the local fans and everything. And, you know, it's just the way you look at it. I'm proud to be, you know, people that Thunder Road and Barry and everything held me in high regard and they look forward to it. And, you know, and the fact I was representing Ford made it even better. <laughs> you know, I was, I was Ford's big hope. <laughs> David, uh, like I said, this is totally our pleasure. Um, I think I can speak for Tom on that. Oh, I like uh, that. You know, like we, that. we thank yeah. you. We thank you very much. 
Oh, it was great. I enjoyed it more than you realize. It was so wonderful to think back and share my. You know, sometimes you got to say it to somebody before you realize that's what's inside you. <laughs> Did you ask me a question? I tried to be honest. And I said things I didn't realize that they affected me, but because they came out of my mouth telling you, now I think, wow, that's really how I do feel. <laughs> kind of funny, I guess. <laughs> so you made you made it special for me by asking really great questions. Well, well, if you if you want to if you want to hear what you said, this this airs on Friday. So. <laughs> oh yeah, no, 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 there's no chance for that. <laughs> or if you just need another therapy session, we are always. Yeah, yeah. we can do we can do part two. Yeah, you call. Yeah, you you call me when you got that. They, I was on a bus him down at the Northern restaurant, and uh, he asked me some questions, and, and uh, they. I finally said, I said that before we started rolling on, I said, if you don't want an answer, don't ask the question. And he said, what's that being? I said, and he said, oh, oh, yeah, okay, buzz and aggregate friends. And I said, if you don't, <laughs> if you ask the question, you're going to get the answer. <laughs> and here we are, right at Daytona, it's going to come out this much. It's not going to be well received. <laughs> oh, all right, man. Thank you very much. I'm so happy. I'm proud of you guys. Keep doing it. Keep the sport alive. Keep, keep doing it. Once again, thank you to Dave Dion for giving us so much of his time. It is I, Tom Corbett, and I need but a moment of your time. As I sit here at 34 almost 35 years old, my competitiveness remains unsullied. And through these first 16 episodes, I have 17. kept my competitive volcano dormant. <laughs> but tonight it shall erupt. I'm trying real hard. We are approaching 1,300 likes on Facebook. And I have friends with podcasts. We have competitors in our area. And I want to have more likes than them. <laughs> we do these to learn and to discover things. To expound to take in information and give it all to you, our listeners. To disseminate knowledge. It is our destiny to lead the unknowledged to our podcast promised land. Our birthright. And you are the shepherds of our destiny. You are the bricks in which scripted? we are building an uncommon empire. Oh, my freaking God. And we need you. Holy hell. To bring us more bricks. I'm so glad Dave Dion's not going to listen back to this. We need more bricks to build this empire. And we need for you. To invite everybody. Everybody. 
to like us on our Facebook page. We want to get to 2,000 likes. Everybody. And when we do, we will do something for you. What it is, I do not know. <laughs> what it shall be? No. Maybe a merch drop. Ooh. Maybe we'll let you pick the next guest. We will figure out a way to say thank you for bringing the masses to our podcast. How long is this? I think that's more or less everything I needed to say. <laughs> but I want you all to please share our podcast and invite all of your Facebook friends to like our page. Recommend. Leave us reviews. Share. Do all of those things. Comment and share. We want to see just the impact that you all can make if share you really try. We say every week. Follow. To follow, to like, to do all these things. But we say it knowing that you're probably not going to do it. <laughs> but this week is different. This is we the week. want you to actually do it. Do it. To actually like it. To actually leave a five-star review. I've got a second COVID shot and things aren't going well. And share and invite all your friends. That being said, Dave Dion, Holy that was a great, great interview. I told Justin that wow. I might go a was little rogue. Minutes? Pretty close. Yeah. Whew. You went for it. Yeah. Yeah. I was feeling inspired. God, you it's like a really, really good train accident. That's what that was. Okay. Yeah, no, it's that's yep. I don't know. I thought it was just but all the things just you beautiful. Said, I, yeah, and it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um all the things you said were, you know, yeah, that was good. <laughs> and I even kept a straight face through almost all No, of you did not. <laughs> no well, you didn't. I, I kept from laughing into the microphone through almost all of it. You, you didn't break. I'll tell you that. You didn't break. Justin did. I did. Well, I didn't know it was coming. That's true. I did tell you that I was going to go for it a little bit. That was spectacular. But anywho, thank you for uh, yeah. sticking through this full episode. And like I said, great stories. See that. He brought it. It was awesome. Like we said at the top of the show, the thing that was the thing that was the coolest was what you didn't hear, uh, where he's just patting us on the back. We're like, why? What? What? He compared we'll us. It. He did. I'm sure you've noticed in right in the middle, like the first third of the episode, he compared us to Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah. Not sure how to uh, thank you. Yeah. No, he I mean, was. I did. I did win the Daytona 500 a couple of times, so that's it's fair. It's fair. I did drink a Budweiser one time. Okay, so, 
we have that going. Yeah. Next week's guest, going to be a good one. Yep. They all are. We'd like to think so. Yeah. Oh, one and, and thing the, before we go. This past week yeah. was our... Incredible. Has been our best week so far in terms of listens to a new episode with the, the Derek week, O'Donnell yeah. episode in terms of first week downloads, first 24-hour downloads. Yep. You guys tuned in, crushed it. Murdered Thank it. you. Yep. This was easily our most successful week in terms of downloads. So great job. Yeah. No, like, and right now it's Wednesday that we're doing this. And in four days, what's the math on that? Five days, it has surpassed half of the episodes ahead of it. He's got six days. Sure it is. You got to count Friday. I guess you're right. You got to count Friday. Sure. Um, Anyway, it is blown out of the water episodes that have been months old. So thank you. But really, like what like Tom said, invite everybody. That's that's a big deal. If you click that invite button, invite your friends to like the social media pages, um, especially on the Facebook. You know, we're not competing, but we totally are with all these other podcasts. Absolutely. So like comment and by all means, remember, you can comment, you can message us mm-hmm. if you have any suggestions or just you want to chat. We're usually pretty good at getting back to people in a pretty timely fashion. Sometimes we both respond at the same time. That has happened a couple of times. <laughs> uh, it is... Uh, an honor to bring you these podcasts. And this one is drawing to its conclusion. Thank God. You have been listening to the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media. And you are the shepherds of our destiny. Good God, Tom. <laughs>